Coming up, it's Counterculture with Marie Buskey. A look into the world of critical social justice, woke culture, and more on RCR. Reality Check Radio. People are struggling to have conversations and connect with others that they don't completely agree with on every topic. And I think that's probably the biggest problem that we need to try and solve is how after all this division and after all this separation, do we end up bringing people together again? And what does unity really look like? New Zealand faces some pretty big issues. First one is COVID in the aftermath. There's no getting away from that. Second is racial division. It's been ginned up and it's dangerous. Another issue that maybe people haven't got their head around yet is digital currency. What form does that take? Is it programmable? Will it be used to manipulate behaviour and patterns of behaviour? Those questions need to be asked and answered. How can you have fair, open, democratic government by people who are appointed? It's a ridiculous idea. And if that idea is taken to its zenith, then this country is in real trouble because democracy, one person, one vote, where every vote is of equal value, has got to be the foundation of a modern New Zealand. What's true, what's not true, how our kids are to be educated. And, you know, I have a great fear for the future. I think we know from history where this could end up. Welcome to Counterculture here on Reality Check Radio. I am your host, Marie Buskey, and this is the place where we discuss the issues through a cultural lens and how ideologies are impacting our everyday lives. The end of the year is fast approaching, so I thought it would be prudent to get in Kelly Valudos to talk about homeschooling and what are some of the things she thinks you need to implement if this is the path that you're looking to follow with your children for 2024. Then I chat with Matt Robson, former Alliance Party MP and lawyer from the International Association for Nuclear Disarmament. We'll chat about the nuances of peace negotiations and we might drift off into a little bit of politics as well. Marty will be back with Media Matters. We'll cover all the whining, the theatrics and who did what to whom this week in politics and media. And then I'll round things off with a very special Woke News of the Week featuring Auntie Hey Hey herself, Karina Shields. Speaking of theatrics, there was theatrics of a different kind done on Kiwi Farm. Don't miss out on how the farmhouse swearing in went. We'll do all of that in just a moment. The central farmyard was a bustling hive of activity this fine summer December morning. On the back of the truck that arrived the night before from the back paddocks were an old hunterway called Bazza and a heading dog named Sheila. They don't come into town much, preferring the quieter life of the outer pastures, being busy in their work of making sure the farm is productive and well-fed. However, the past six years under Napoleon and Chippy have seen what had started as a pinch turn into a full-blown squeeze. What was demanded of them both in time and tax was vastly more in any time under Farmer John's tenure at the farm, and with all the feed provided, these two, along with Squealer's help, appeared to make things worse, not better for hard-working dogs like Bazza and Sheila. 
They worked until Bezza's bark was hoarse and Sheila couldn't see straight. They managed to avoid the compulsory drenching by hiding in a hayshed and keeping their movements strictly to the confines of the back paddocks. Their only venturing into town was to support the occupation in the farmyard a few years previous, so their return today was somewhat momentous. They had come to watch the swearing-in of the new animals taking their seats around the farmhouse table. They couldn't believe that Winnie Ben had made several trips to their old hayshed and back paddock pens during the campaign, something no other animal from the farmyard had even bothered to do in years. Can you see anything yet, Bazza? inquired Sheila. Oh, here they come, Sheila. Look over there, Baz replied. They both looked up to see all the elected animals parade their way down the cobbled path into the farmyard and up the steps to take their oaths before heading inside. First up was Oinky Lux with Nicky Sal, both with polished snouts and trotters, and Oinky looked very prime ministerial indeed. Following on behind was Davy Piglet with his best howdy-doody-doo smile, and then Winnie Ben, all gleaming white teeth and a hint of mischief in his eye. They all stood together on the step and recited their oath to king and country, presided over by Nigel, Kiwi Farm's wise old packles. Up next, it was the turn of Chippy Pork and Squealer Robertson. They rushed through their oaths and scurried inside as quickly as possible, not willing to face the embarrassment of their lost any more than they needed to. Oh, strength, Sheila! Cop a load of that! exclaimed Bazza. Sheila glanced up to see the most ridiculous sight. The Kunikunis, Dave and Deb, had arrived. What on earth are they wearing? asked Sheila. Looks like Debbie's raided the washing lines at Gloria Vale on her way into town. Oh, gets worse, Shell. Dave looks like he's wearing a roadkill wicker. Is that even allowed? Just as Bazza and Sheila were getting their bearings at the ridiculous scenes unfolding, Deb and Dave started hollering and wailing, squealing and squalling in front of a very patient Nigel, who was trying to administer the oath. After much unnecessary theatrics, Nigel got the required affirmations and allowed the kunikuni inside. Just when Bazza and Sheila thought things couldn't get any more ridiculous, the free-range pigs arrived. Showy Sarbrick out in front, looking in need of a shave, Moonbeam looking bewildered, and Shawshank trying to keep them all cohesively together. Bazza looked at Sheila puzzled. Sheila! Why are the free-range pigs wearing tea towels? Are they volunteering to do the washing up after the ceremony? Nah, Baz. That would mean they'd be doing work. The free-rangers aren't so keen on getting their trotters dirty. It must be because their rainbow flags are dirty and in the wash, explained Sheila. Nigel finished up his work and followed the free-range pigs inside. He was going to need a long, cold brew after today's shenanigans. Just as he turned, he looked down the driveway to see two working dogs making their way out of the farmyard, with their paws in the air hoping to thumb a ride. Nigel sighed heavily, a little jealous at their escape, and wished quietly too for the lush pastures in the back paddocks of Kiwi Farm. Make sure you join me next week for Kiwi Farm, exclusively here on Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. It's Christmas time. 
and we'll see how the animals are celebrating. Thanks for tuning in to RCR, Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, or even if you don't agree with what you're listening to, then get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057, that's 2057. Or if you'd rather email us, you can at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you, so get in touch with us now. Welcome back to Counterculture here with Marie on RCR. Joining me now is my education guru from the ARC Education, Kelly Valudos. How are you, Kelly? I'm good, thank you, Marie. Thank you for having me on again. I oh, giggle great. about the education guru. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were just actually just having a brief chat before we got started. What is just some of some highbrow thoughts from you about the coalition agreement in regards to education and getting back to basics? Uh, what are your thoughts there? I know that everybody will be sighing this great sigh of relief, but I would be very cautious <laughs> in sighing that sigh simply because. It's all very well saying getting back to basics. For one thing, I'm not sure what Christopher Luxon has been thinking teachers teach at school. It's not, it's the problems aren't the basics. The basics are being taught. The problems are way far reaching than the teaching, to be honest, because the machine, which is the Ministry of Education, is lumbering on no matter what. And we still have enormous issues when it comes to funding. And it's a huge bureaucratic machine. And when you know that only a third of the budget actually reaches schools, you start thinking, well, what the heck's going on, really? Mm. It will be interesting to see whether they address the spending. There was a report that came out recently that said uh, of the recent hiring done by the Ministry of Education, only a very small percentage of those was teachers. Absolutely. Well, the fact of the matter is is there are no teachers to hire because most of us have either said, bugger this, and left, or they're finding it incredibly difficult to recruit teachers and get teachers trained. Because nobody wants to be a teacher, which is hardly surprising the conditions that surround education. And I must say that it's not only New Zealand. This is a worldwide phenomenon. And my belief, if you like, or my intuitive knowing is that we're on the wrong waka. Our whole kaupapa or our whole philosophy is based on an industrial model and neoliberalism. And we've moved so far away from our, I guess, our our origins, our humanity, that school has become all but redundant for a lot of our new generations. They just don't find any value in being at school. So it's an interesting conundrum to be in. And just saying that, oh, we're going back to basics and we're getting rid of the gender ideology isn't enough, in my opinion. There needs to be a complete review, a toss-out, basically, (laughs) of many of the institutional, traditional ideas and ideologies before 
we can actually get to a place where school is safe and productive and a place where kids and teachers want to be. Yeah, and it will be it will take a strong minister to do that. So it will be interesting to see what Erica Stanford does over the next three years and what she's actually able to realistically achieve. So I think it is very watch this space. But what we thought I'd get you on to talk about this morning is actually a continuation of the theme that we've been talking about across the year because, as you said, it is a really big machine. It's going to take time. And there are probably parents now with their kids right here, right now, where the current system is not going to work and they're at that crisis point where they're thinking we need to change something and homeschooling or takura at home is possibly what they're looking at as an alternative. So I thought we could talk about some of the mechanisms to think about because this is the time to be thinking about it, isn't it? I Yeah, I absolutely agree. Actually, probably even earlier would have been the time to be thinking about it. But the sooner the better, if you are considering changing the paradigm of your schooling, it's now or never really, especially as next year we'll fast approach and we've got the Christmas break in between. It actually doesn't give much time. So if you're thinking about it, get your wheels on now, definitely. So what are some if of the first steps? Are, what would be the first thing that people would need to do if they haven't caught up with our previous content? They've just got, uh, say, their kids back from high school now. I think the high school's getting ready to break up in the next week or two, and they're just thinking, no, I can't do this with my kids, or they're transitioning primary to intermediate. What's number one thing that they need to do? They, first of all, need to do an audit. I always recommend doing an audit. And don't do it for your children, do it with your children. And that doesn't matter what age it is, because if you are going to take your child out of school, you want them on on side with you because you don't want it to be in an uphill battle all day, every day when they're at home. You want it to be a different experience. You want it to be fun. You want it to be enriched. The first thing I would do if I was now pulling my, or thinking about pulling my kid out of school, would be to sit down with them and have a really good chat about it with them. And it's not just superficial chat like, ah, oh, you know, we don't think you're doing very well. I think we think that you should be at home, learning at home. I think what we need to realize is that any transition for any student is exceptionally stressful because the unknown is un is stressful. Uh, we know, even as adults, you know, that fear of not knowing what the future is, that's how what a lot of us are actually controlled, is through that fear. So I would sit down with my child and or children and have a good discussion about how they're doing at school, honestly, you know, um, not what what did you do at school sort of thing, but how do you feel when you go to school and open up that conversation and don't just have it once. I would have it two or three or four times and make sure that they're on board with 
the change. And once they're on board, you've you're pretty much eighty percent there. It then takes your time and effort and sometimes frustration to decide then if you're going to homeschool or enroll with Tekura. A lot of parents enroll their high school students into Tekura because they feel that they don't have the capacity or the knowledge to get them through NCEA. And it could be a valid thing, but I feel that everybody has the capacity. It just takes some ingenuity, I guess. But quite a few parents also go go to work with their teenagers staying at home doing tikura. Um, I know a lot of people who have done that, and actually their kids have done fine. But you've got to know that your child is capable of organising, of self-directing, of making sure that, you know, that, that self-discipline, of making sure that they're on the calls when they need to be on the calls. I tried it for one term with my son and it just didn't work for him. <laughs> it, it honestly didn't work for him. Um, we tried it when I came down to Wellington about five years ago and he was 16. He was in his, yeah, he was doing NCEA level two for that term. He just didn't have the, the discipline, I guess, and actually the interest. He needed somebody to be prodding him, <laughs> basically. He is dyslexic, although he's, he's not illiterate dyslexic, but he, he, along with that dyslexia comes a little bit of, you know, ADHD <laughs> disorganization and stuff. So it, well, it's, it didn't it's, work it, out for him. Yeah. I mean, I'm having one of those myself at home. It, the difficult thing is that motivation. I mean, when they are at home, there's always something else vastly more tempting to do than do your schoolwork. So I think, yeah, <laughs> I think, yeah. And I, and I saw that with my two during the lockdowns. I mean, one of them at the time yeah. was in year nine. The other one was in year 10. The one that was in year 10, yeah, sorry, year eight to begin with, and then year nine, and then year nine and year 10 with the second lockdown. And the reality of it was is that one was as good as gold. He would go on when the Zoom calls were there well, to begin with, and he was doing the work that he needed to do. The older one with the dyslexic and ADHD, he didn't do any work whatsoever, not a single skerrick of schoolwork no. the entire lockdown period. Neither None. did my son. And I'm, you know, I'm his teacher mother who nagged him. And the more I nagged, the least he did. So, <laughs> And actually, I think he missed school, to be honest. We thought we'd try it out, but he missed school. So, so it's really important that you make sure that it is going to work for your kid. And and look, if it doesn't work, you can always go back to school, I guess. So it, it, it's not the end of the world, but it's a long thing. And then for it not to not to turn out the way you want it to or, or to be useful. So make sure that everybody is on board before you decide to get on that walker and really go for it. Once everybody is absolutely sure that they want to do what you want to do, you've got to decide whether you're going to do tikura. If you are 16, 16 years 
and over to Kura is free. I think the I'm not sure you'd have to get hold of them. I'm I'm sorry I didn't. It was something I was going to look up on Friday and I never did. <laughs> was the fee structure for Tukura for the under 16? I don't think it's like horrendous, but there is there is a fee structure. If you're thinking about Tukura, the the a lot of people think that it's isolating and that students don't get that socialization. But I've found that Takura are really good at organizing study groups and, you know, extracurricular stuff. They, they have a camp every year that you can sign up to. And I've had friends with children who have gone to Takura and it actually becomes a really social, a really social thing if you allow it to. You can opt in or you can opt out. And I encourage parents to ensure that their kids do opt into these things because that connection is really, really important with their peers. And also they get to meet, you know, certain lecturers face-to-face. Face yeah, like no, and, and that one-on-one is quite important. What do you, so then you've made decided which way you're going to go, whether it be Takura or you create your own learning plan. What are the next steps yeah. in terms of talking to the ministry and making it all sort of above board official? Absolutely. So with Takura, you have to enrol because it's actually a school. You have to get hold of them. You have to enrol and go through all that, the same as you would if you were enrolling your child to a school. So that's actually fairly straightforward and easy. If you are deciding that you're going to homeschool, it's a little more complicated. It's not difficult. It is time-consuming, and for parents who don't have the confidence, it can be daunting. But the exemption process, is it, it, it does protect you. Some people have opted to just go, I'm not engaging. But you, you do run the risk of having the truancy officers knocking on your door and making life quite difficult for you. So I would say go for an exemption. It is a fairly arduous process if you haven't done it before and if you don't have support. So you fill in the form, that's easy enough, you know, <laughs> but you have to put in a year's plan and you have to show the ministry that you are capable of setting goals for your child and meeting those needs or, or identifying those needs and meeting those needs at a home. Not that you're likely to have anybody come and follow up, but <laughs> You could have somebody come in and do an audit on you from Aero. I think they do do a sample every year, but I think the, the community has become so big that it would be highly unlikely that you would get audited, but you might. There's never... It's not an absolute. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, never say never. I recommend that if you are completely daunted by having to write up a year's plan and you know you, you you don't even know where to start there are people who can help you there's Cynthia Hancock 
who, if you go to her website, and actually her contact details are on the Arts Education, um, under resources, you'll see that there's home exemptions. If you go to her website, she has several resources that you can purchase off her website including a sample plan. You just follow that plan and put in your own ideas and words where she... It's long, but it's easy enough to do. Also on the website is my ex-director, a colleague, Nikki Zanchi. And Nikki is a homeschooler teacher. She's actually a trained teacher as well. And but she she's amazing. She's had 25 years experience homeschooling her five children. And, wow. Um, who've all done exceptionally well. And like, I know, <laughs> amazing. She's got amazing skills. She connects really well one-on-one with people. And she will she'll advise you. She won't do it for you, but she will advise you and take you step by step through the process and also as a consultant I guess she's an amazing counsellor and she'll take you through all the all the emotional and mental aspects of transitioning from school to homeschool for both you and your your child or children so um, I highly recommend that you do get some help don't be don't be afraid to reach out. Both Nikki and Cynthia have, uh, you know, really reasonable, uh, they they do charge a little bit, but a really reasonable amount because they're both really dedicated to helping parents and families to get their children into homeschooling because they're passionate about it. You know, Mm. that, that is what they really love to do. And if you're finding it really isolating and difficult, there is, um, and I'm doing a wee plug here, if that's okay, Marie. Go for your life. <laughs> um, myself and a couple of other people, including Nikki, actually, have put together a 12-week course, which we will be running next year, called Drop the School Run. It is for for parent educators who are, home educating their children and it's not so much a how-to because as far as we're all concerned in developing this course when you're at home educating your children you're doing it because education at school isn't working for them so why would you do school at home (laughs) it doesn't make sense you know you have this opportunity to design the paradigm Mm. yes Absolutely. Go on a different direction, on a direction that your child loves and is enthusiastic about. We've put this course together as, a, I guess, an experience so that you can, you can get a whole different perspective and a whole lot of different ideas around how you can put this program together. And just remember that you know, what you write down in your exemption is a guideline. It might, you know... It, it, it could change, it could evolve. Follow it. it could change. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because every day is different. 
and every day your your child or children need something different, you know. So you're in an ideal position at home to give them what they need when they need it. Mm. Um, unlike school, because so many, you know, numbers that it's difficult to meet every child's need on any given day. That that makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, in terms of that course, is that on the ARC Education website, if they, people want more information on that? Yes, it is indeed. It is on the events page. If they want more information on that, it's a 12-week course. We've dropped the price of it. We probably pitched it too high last uh, this year, but we dropped the price of it. We want people to benefit from, uh, and it's not just our wisdom. We've got some amazing people on board coming in and doing sessions. It's and and the big the best thing about it, I believe, is that we're hoping to build community. Yeah, I actually had a really interesting interview with Christine from Coming Home, whom you actually I do know. Yeah, I know the lovely. Yeah, the lovely Christine. She's fantastic. Yeah, she is. She was lovely, and we had a, a, a really interesting conversation. And part of that conversation was how there seems to be a bit of conflict happening with this new influx of families who have come into homeschooling recently and the old school homeschoolers. There's a bit of a disparity going on and we we had a really good chat about that and I, I recommend that you actually listen to that particular podcast because before you go into making any decisions because you know, I gave some, well, what I think is good advice, and Christine thought it was good advice, about that sort of situation where part of homeschooling is getting into a community. You actually do have to connect with a community if you want that socialization happening for your, for your children. And um, because that is one of the, the most important things that any child can learn is how to connect not only with themselves but with others it's really really important to to be able to do that and have opportunities to do that so once you once you've done your exemption you put it in be patient because the ministry is still being quite inundated by exemption applications I think there's a bit of, it, it, it could be an administrative thing, but there's also, it, it's kind of, I'm not sure why, but they're, they're turning down quite a few applications. Uh, you know, we could think, we could think of a plethora of reasons, really, but they do it on whim. It would seem to be honest. Don't get disheartened if your application, is, your exemption is turned down the first time because you can reapply. It's, I don't think it costs anything. It's about just being tenacious, doing what they ask you to do on your application and resubmitting it. Well, that tenacity, though, I think is something 
that needs to you need to have anyway because I mean this isn't a very it's a it's a pretty major decision and if you're not tenacious uh, as a parent homeschooling is probably not going to necessarily work for you is it no hey before (laughs) we absolutely so before we go now charter schools are back on the table what are your thoughts on that when I was teaching and charter schools were on the table I was kind of a little bit ambivalent about it much to my colleague Chagan because you know, teachers, we were all told, especially through the schools and through the ministry, but mostly through, I don't know what it was really. There was the fear that our profession would become, I don't know, watered down, if you like. The unions were very dead against it, as, as you can well imagine, because with charter schools, there was the possibility that unqualified teachers are, are taken on board and basically they can do what they like. Or, or that was the, the the perception that charter schools can basically set their own curriculums and get on with doing what they like. And at the time, I thought, what a bloody good idea. <laughs> I was not very popular in my opinion, though. <laughs> charter schools, they would work in principle. My worry is is that you get corporations involved in anything. Look at Big Pharma with medicine and university. They basically run the medical industry. Big Pharma does. Universities have to toe the line or else they don't get the funding, which is a very precarious position to be in, to be honest. And Charter schools would be run on the same principle. So because basically what charter schools is doing, although it opens up, you know, it opens up education to a certain degree, but if you have a certain industry or a corporation funding your school, you have to dance to their tune. Mm. So that is one of the dangers there, isn't it? Oh, it will be interesting to see what filters out because, I mean, I guess like anything, there's positives and negatives. Remind everybody where they can get all this wonderful resource of information. So the ARC Education, it's arceducation.co.nz? That's right. It's www.thearcheducation.co.nz. If you go to the resources section, you will see that these home exemptions under the resources section. If anybody needs help or advice or a direction to go in, I am more than happy to set up a Zoom meeting with them and have a chat. Um, the, also, the the other thing I didn't actually mention with homeschooling is that there are several academies, if you like, popping up, one of them being Spectrum education which is like a home school from home but almost done Tikura style but with qualified teachers and a a really sort of future focused curriculum um run by the the she's she's a wonderful educator and speaker Karen Tui Boyd I'm not sure if you've I've heard, heard of, of her. her before. Yeah, I have. And Crimson, yeah. is it Crimson uh, Academy is another one I've, I know people Crimson, that are doing? 
yeah, Crimson Academy, I think, is just high school. Um, I'm not sure. Please don't quote me on that. I haven't looked very carefully into it. Um, but, yes, there's the Crimson Academy, there's Spectrum Education, and there's, there's a couple of others that and international ones too. There's quite a few American homeschooling curriculums, and there's the whole world. <laughs> different yeah. world of curriculums and advice that you can get through. So really um, you need to do your research. You need to spend the time, be tenacious, and this is not just an on-the-whim kind of a decision. Oh, look, as always, Kelly, it has Absolutely. been fantastic. This is Kelly Valudos from the ARC Education. And no doubt we'll catch up in the new year and we'll see how things unfold with this yes, new definitely. new chief at the helm of the Ministry of Education. Until then, take care and don't Indeed. disappear. More great content still here to come with Counterculture with Reality Check Radio. Thanks, Kelly. Thank you. Merry Christmas, everyone. <laughs> right now, free speech is under heavy attack in New Zealand with the government constantly devising new ways to enforce censorship. To revive Honest Media and support RCR, join our Foundation Membership Club today. To learn more, visit realitycheck.radio members. Want an easier way to listen to RCR? Well, you can now download the brand new Reality Check Radio app, both on iOS and Android. We've completed our beta testing, and the app is now live. You can visit the App Stores direct or find out all you need to know at www.realitycheck.radio forward slash app. That's at realitycheck.radio forward slash app. Our test bunnies have been hard at play to ensure you have access to everything from listening to our live broadcast, downloading some of our incredible interviews and checking out the latest blogs all from the very same app. So get listening and download the RCR app now. Welcome back to Counterculture. You are here with Marie on Reality Check Radio. Joining me now is former MP for the Alliance Party and lawyer for the Pacific Region, lead lawyer for the International Association of Lawyers Against Nuclear Arms, Matt Robson. Good morning and welcome to Counterculture. Thank you very much, Marie. Good to be here. It is great to have you here. And I was just saying to you before we got started, I met somebody that has done some work with you around the areas of peace and disarmament, and I was not aware that you had moved into that area. It sounds utterly fascinating. So tell us a little bit more about the work that you do with the International Association of Lawyers Against Nuclear Arms. Okay. Well, the background uh, for my involvement, of course, I'm a lawyer and it's an association of lawyers, though it's got non-lawyers in it as well, people with expertise in disarmament. Uh, But when I was a member of parliament, as you mentioned, uh, one of the cabinet responsibilities I had was uh, Minister for Disarmament and Arms Control, which, although it's uh, at a low profile after New Zealand became nuclear free, uh, because there was a sense that, well, New Zealand was nuclear free, what else do we have to do? Uh, it was, if you think, if you like, it's one of the key portfolios for New Zealanders because of the attachment uh, of such a great majority of New Zealanders who do not want uh, nuclear weapons. But going beyond nuclear weapons uh, is to the question of the bigger question of disarmament itself uh, in a world that uh, is awash both with weapons and what comes with those weapons, conflict and war. And of course, we have two major wars going on at the moment. 
and in the back, one in the Ukraine and one in the, uh, the Palestine and Israel. And uh, beyond those, of course, are many, many centres of uh, tension. So back to your, uh, your question, uh, what the uh, lawyers try to do is to focus on those uh, steps that have already been taken, such as the non-proliferation uh, treaty, uh, the uh, recently introduced uh, treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons, which New Zealand has signed, uh, but the major nuclear powers uh, have not. Um, so it lacks uh, force, but it's still uh, a treaty which has got the support of the majority of the world have no nuclear weapons uh, whatsoever. And so the lawyers focus on the the, the, the key um, legal instruments. Uh, but beyond that, they also look at uh, such things as the other uh, disarmament uh, mechanisms uh, on mining, uh, chemical weapons, biological weapons, anything that comes into that framework. But if you like, with the nuclear weapons is, of course, the ultimate uh, stupidity of humankind. Not all of us, but uh, who want to destroy us. And in fact, it's a little bit interesting that with the recent death of Henry Kissinger, former uh, Secretary of State for the United States, uh, he was one of the key fosterers of, nu of spreading nuclear weapons. Uh, he played a big role in the acquisition of nuclear weapons by Israel, undeclared, Pakistan, uh, outside of the uh, NPT, uh, plus in many other conflicts. So uh, I'm giving that just as an example of the, 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 the centrality of this issue. Now, of course, for most New Zealanders, all of us have to get up in the morning and we hope that the world will be okay in our sphere, but it intrudes uh, into us. And you know, right at this moment, above you and I are satellites which control uh, nuclear weapons aimed at the whole world um, and <laughs> um, frightening aspect is quite a few of the nuclear powers and the, the lawyers to focus on this. Uh, they have uh, first strike policies. Now, that's, if anyone understands, that's frightening. So, well, we'll use our nuclear weapons, even if we're not attacked by uh, nuclear weapons, if we need to. So the biggest armed uh, alliance, military alliance in the world, uh, NATO, of which now New Zealand is a global partner, uh, that has a first strike policy. Uh, yeah. Russia used to have a no first strike. So in other words, you have to attack us before we ever use nuclear weapons. They abandoned that uh, in the tumultuous years after the uh, dissolution of the Soviet Union and the issues with NATO and Europe. Uh, China and France doesn't have it. It's the other nuclear, and Britain doesn't have it as a, they're both new, uh, NATO members. The only uh, declared nuclear power, or the, or the one in the uh, NPT, the Non-Proliferation Treaty, China, that has a no-first-strike policy. And what about North Korea? Well, no, North Korea, uh, well... It, it, it <laughs> officially run officially. Well, the, th the thing is, I don't, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. Uh, uh, well, possibly they, they, they do have a first strike, uh, but they are a very small... Mm. Uh, Small power in this. I mean, they you know, they have a nuclear weapon. They they, they could do damage. They of course uh, have it. And South Korea has nuclear weapons in abundance, not their own, but under the uh, United States um, uh, nuclear umbrella. And the, in fact, it's useful that you 
point that out because I, I talked about centers of conflict. And in our conversation, I'm drawing on the fact that as the Minister for Disarmament and Arms Control, my job for New Zealand was to put strongly to the world that we wanted nuclear disarmament for everybody, not just one country, not just North Korea or this country, that country, all of them. But uh, in terms of centers of conflict, I mentioned Ukraine, I mentioned Palestine, but you brought up North Korea. The Korean Peninsula is a time bomb. And the Japan, uh, which is not supposed to have any offensive uh, military capacity, is the ninth, seventh or ninth biggest arms buyer in the world, has an enormous military capacity. Uh, it has nuclear weapons on its soil, uh, aimed not just at North Korea, but at China. So they aim them back, of course. And on the Korean Peninsula, uh, the is only an armistice. So most of us, uh, have, understandably, have forgotten that war. Mm. We, we look at Gaza now, but the war, if anyone ever studies the whatever happened on the Korean Peninsula, where New Zealand has soldiers, and just because we're having a conversation, <laughs> it mm. leads into other things. As New Zealanders, uh, Australians, New Zealanders, this part of the world, we have to realise we've been involved in almost every major conflict, small as we are. Uh, we, we've been so we've got soldiers buried in uh, Korea. We've got this is not to put blame on those soldiers, but we've got victims of that war uh, who, you know, our military were there, their military were there, deeply involved. So back to what that is. So North Korea, yes has developed a nuclear weapon, but the South, the Korea, is armed to the teeth. And beyond that, in terms of trigger points, uh, is China, which knows that, uh, if you like, a bit like the Ukraine, when the Russians had a look at the Ukraine, they were considering the Ukraine as the gateway for anybody who comes to, to our country, Napoleon, Hitler. I mean, whether they're right or wrong, that's how they see it. And the Chinese see Korea as a staging point for an attack on them. So you can see how things multiply. So what's New Zealand's role in that? Uh, and then I'll come back to the original question. You had the uh, International Lawyers Association. Um, but as a, as a member of that organization uh, from, from New Zealand uh, and looking at the role that we can play both in that association and in the wider disarmament uh, issues, uh, what's our the question that New Zealand has? Uh, what's our role? Do we join one of the the parties? Uh, do we line up with NATO and uh, the increasing polarization between the NATO countries, Russia and China, and not just Russia and China, but all of those countries that either ally with or try to stay neutral, all those countries in Africa, all those countries in Asia, uh, and it links in. And uh, I come back to getting up in the morning. Uh, <laughs> You know, people go to work, get them, but mm. they can't concentrate on these things. Mm. But our political leaders and organisations that I belong to need to because uh, wars suddenly occur and you're dragged into it whether you like it or not. And New Zealand uh, is in the situation where we need to take this uh, very seriously. So finally, I'll conclude this very long harangue, is that the International Lawyers Association plays a small part uh, but I hope a useful part in focusing on what are the what are what are already the instruments that could lead us back from this uh, this this uh, because 
you, you sometimes feel when you're talking about it, people's eyes can glaze over. Oh, nuclear weapons, that's, you know, what, what is, what's that got to do with me? But when you're involved in this work, and what I just mentioned to you, I know in my head, I can visualize the satellites which are coordinated mm -hmm. to strike with nuclear weapons. And in the case of the, the war in the Ukraine, uh, nuclear weapons have been in play. Not just, I mean, there's been a lot in our media about uh, President Putin's uh, position on you know, nuclear weapons, but we've seen nothing on the fact that NATO has declared its enmity, its absolute hostility to the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, which we've signed up to. Uh, in their documents, which once again, I don't expect everybody to go rushing and reading, but all our political leaders need to, because we've signed up to it. In the NATO documents, the latest one, the latest declarations, uh, and then going back, uh, they castigate the, the Treaty of the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. Say, this can't be. We're the ones that are going to save the world. We're going to keep our first strike capacity, which is just saying, we'll hit you with nuclear weapons. Now, behind that, and it's actually illegal, so I'm getting close to it, the, the Lawyers Association, we do draw on this. It's illegal to threaten and mm -hmm. just take it to a, a normal person or average person. If we're threatened, you come to my house with a gun, that's a crime. You mightn't use it, but you're, you're threatening me. It's a crime under the Crimes Act. In international law, too, it's a crime. It's actually a crime <laughs> to threaten people with war. And so this saying, we've got a first strike, and our opinion of the, the Lawyers Association, it's a breach of international law. The problem you get that with international law, it's not like our domestic law where you can call the police. There's no 111 to call. The big powers either use international law when it suits them or they ignore it. Um, plenty of so cases so these discussions, where do they all play out? Do they play out at The Hague or they are played out at treaties? I mean, how do you get in front of or have influence towards right. to have these conversations? Well, you can. Or, well, good you brought up The Hague. So the uh, International Court of Justice is in, in The Hague. and But it's a, it's a tricky business because um, countries have to agree to its jurisdiction. Uh, and then some have a reservation. Uh, well, we'll agree to a jurisdiction except for these, 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 these points. A prime... Um, uh, culprit in ignoring the International Court of Justice uh, is the United States of America. Um, and we're, what are we? I can't re never remember. We're friends or allies. I think we're back being an ally. Um, and so the International Court, uh, which has, uh, I think, about nine justices, I've actually studied there, they um, are drawn from all around the world, but always well, there's always a uh, united states uh, judge and you know other countries that don't like it they have the same system but you'll often see a one judge against a, a ruling and the rest of them saying to give an example uh, the small country of nicaragua and central america the united states mined its harbors uh, they supplied weapons to a counter-revolutionary terrorist force. I think it's the Sandinistas there, isn't it? Uh, well, the Sandinistas were in government. The Contras mm. were armed by the Reagan government and others. They created havoc. They mined the harbours. The Nicaraguans, small, took it to the International Court. Your question on who enforces it. The International Court ruled in their favours and said to the United States, hey, that's against the law. You can't go and put mines in somebody's harbour. You can't give guns to people to attack their hospitals, schools, their government, invade their country. Um, and the United States gave the fingers. 
They've been ordered. They've never paid the money. They've never paid it. They just ignored it. So you can, and then the other body which has a big say these days in international law is the United Nations. So the General Assembly can pass a resolution. Well, they have. The pleasant situation in Palestine, Israel, they have passed resolution after resolution that, that Israel must withdraw from the occupied territories, that there must be two states, Palestine and Israel, ignored. Um, and so many things ignored. So, but it's still, in terms of lawyers, argues, this is law. The, the, the world has spoken. The Security Council can pass it. But if just one of the powerful countries says, up yours for the rhubarb season. Um, There's not a lot that can be done. Uh, I'll just give another example, which is very close to us, and which we keep a close eye on as lawyers. Uh, many of my examples, you know, it could be other countries. I'm more familiar with what where New Zealand is in the world and Australia and the United States. But the current conflicts with China. So there are uh, aeroplanes off the coast of China, of Australia, running into Chinese military aircraft. There are ships sailing up and down the, the Chinese coast. And then there's disputes over uh, which is which is territory owned by China, which is international waters. To some extent, it doesn't matter. If you're that close to a large power and they feel threatened, it's a danger whether you've got international law on your side or not. And here's where big countries pick and choose. So, for instance, you can imagine if the Chinese Navy was sailing up and down the Californian coast, mm. it would be hell to play, whether they were on the 12-mile limit or the 13-mile limit. Well, that was sort of one of the questions that I was going to have because obviously we are based in the Pacific and, you know, those conflicts in Ukraine and the Middle East can feel so far away when we do have issues in our own backyard. And I guess you can see why the Australians have signed up to AUKUS where, I mean, I think that area of dispute is just north of the Coral Sea, isn't it? And there Well, is... no, no, it's far, it's, far, it's, it's far further. I mean, the Coral okay. Sea, it's 2000, I mean, the Solomon Islands. Yeah. But the Chinese up. have just gone and uh, signed an agreement with the Solomon Islands, a cooperation agreement, haven't they not? They, they signed a number of economic agreements and they signed a policing agreement, um, which they would help with the... the the police force of the Solomon. There were there were riots there. There were attacks on Chinese businesses. There were all sorts of things going on. And uh, I'm not here to say whether they're right or wrong. They're a sovereign country. Nobody cared less about the Solomon Islands until I mean, on else in terms of New Zealand, Australia, the United States, until they signed an agreement with China. We had to back off the the government under Jacinda Ardern. They went berserk. I had discussions with some of the the ministers. They went berserk. Uh, the Chinese are coming. Well, actually, there were a few Chinese closer to there. The French are coming. The French have got this most enormous military base in Tahiti. The Solomon Islands is 2,000 kilometers from China. It's 2,000 equidistant to New Zealand. Um, so it's not actually that close. The Coral, Coral Sea is not is not that close to what China. I'm not here as an advocate for what the Chinese do or they don't, you know. But what I'm saying is that we very rarely put ourselves in the shoes of somebody else and, and um, often quick to say, well, they're being aggressive. The question which we in New Zealand uh, comes to the fore, because we're also a colonial country, country settled by colony, Australia, we've got historical issues to, to deal with, of course. And the, the present, and we'll come to that, I'm sure, in your case, the present uh, situation with the government has brought it to the fore. What is the place of Maori? What is the issues? What are the historical issues of a colony? And we were a colony. Australia was a colony. 
Palestine's got a colony from the British mandate through to what's happening now. These issues come to the fore. And in the question of the Pacific, um, it's got to say, have a look. China was a colony. They were trampled over by every uh, European power and the United States who had a part of China. Then the Japanese invaded. And then, so they, they hold very strongly, you will never be a colony again. In the Pacific, the French are there. They're a colonial. NATO has come back to the Pacific. The North Atlantic Treaty Organization in its documents now says the Pacific is a key part. To people in that area, and it should include us, they should be looking and saying, well, hang on a minute. It's not the 19th century. What on earth are most of these issues being disputed by European powers and even, even the Americans? I mean, they're right across the Pacific, but they have a big role to play here. So just back to your question, we have a look at you know what China is doing. We have to look at what we're doing. We have mm. to look at what the NATO powers are doing and what is at the core of this conflict to go back to uh, Korea, because much is focused on North Korea, South Korea, and that. And in New Zealand, uh, in our political circles, we don't have an in-depth, serious discussion and knowledge. I can bet if you bring on to this uh, channel, most of the MPs, I could be wrong, I'm happy to be proved wrong, they would not have a clue on the issues of the Korean Peninsula that go back right to what we mentioned, the Korean War, go back to the Japanese. And politicians who are going to be involved in this have to understand it. They've got to put themselves in the position of the North Koreans, who they look at it, is they're the ones threatened. And therefore, we're going to keep a nuclear weapon. I negotiated, I had talks with North Korea and South Korea on the question of a nuclear-free zone. And I, in my naivety, was extolling the fact New Zealand is nuclear weapon-free. New Zealand has got a treaty of Rarotonga and we don't have nuclear weapons and we don't have ships sailing through, which is actually a bit of a lie because Australia has signed up to allowing uh, the United States has nuclear bombers in North Australia. It has ships visits which carry nuclear weapons, even though they're part of the Treaty of Rarotonga. And that's a that's a case for lawyers as well. I think they're in breach myself. But back to, back to this question. But when I said this to the North Koreans, they just they were very polite. But they just laughed at me. They said, we saw Libya, and we saw they gave up their nuclear weapon. They're in ruins. We saw Iraq, and they don't have a nuclear weapon, and now their country is in ruins. Our adversaries have nuclear weapons, they said. So the only thing stopping them invading us is we have a nuclear weapon. Right or wrong, it's important to understand how they see the world threatening them. We persuade the world, them threatening the world. But actually, in terms of military force, you, the North Koreans have a very big land army, but they haven't got enough petrol to get their trucks to the south. <laughs> yeah, the resource, resourcing is a slight issue. Anyway, I've, I've got a little bit away, but I'm just trying to draw a No, no. It's, a, it, it, it's, it's an area it is. Of, of conflict, and we are involved because when uh, now that the uh, this talk about the Americans coming back into the Pacific, I've said to my colleagues, I've said to them, they've never left. Mm. They never left. They may not, they may have suddenly discovered they need an embassy in the Solomons. I mean, the Solomons are probably quite clever. Sign up with the Chinese and suddenly everybody's offering you embassies, mm. money, play the game. Well, I, I was in American Samoa in January. That, I mean, they still have a base there. 
in military personnel is. So they they have not left. They've been in the Pacific the whole time. <laughs> What's Hawaii? So, you know, so, the, so you yeah. come to the question of the Chinese and the Spratly Islands. This is the thing the Chinese have said this is ours, or they're, they're disputing. These are the islands the, north of Japan, is that correct? No, the Spratlys are uh, off the coast of uh, Vietnam. Ah, those no, those and, were the ones, and, and yes, and that's the Philippines sort of, claim part of it. That's the, the one. Yeah, the Vietnamese claim part. And they have, and, part, yeah? and is that those the islands in which they have built a large they've base? Built, they've built a base, and uh, they've claimed one island. Uh, you know, it's it's a little way from the Chinese coast, but no further than uh, Nauru and uh, Cook Islands, which New Zealand has a military. Yes, but it's smack well. bang in the middle of um, shipping routes, from what well, I understand. Well, well, here's the thing. Yes, 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 it is. And um, and the, the 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 it's gone to a dispute tribunal and the, the Chinese ruled against, but international law comes back. So the Americans kick up a big fuss. It's a little pot calling the kettle black because all the Chinese do is say, "Here's all the international court judgment which you uh, dis- disobeyed. We disagree with this." And then they say, "You're talking about the law of the sea. The United States won't sign the law of the sea." The Law of the Sea Treaty, which we've signed, everybody else has signed, or most countries, they won't sign it. So they're trying to invoke the Law of the Sea and say the Chinese are in breach of the Law of the Sea. They're not a signatory. The Chinese are saying, what do you, you know, you have Hawaii. We don't poke our nose and say, I mean, Hawaii was taken in 1898 for the 50th state or whatever it was. It's an island in the Pacific. Um, It was taken. (laughs) It didn't ask to join the United States. Mm. (laughs) Western Samoa. Now, now, this is not to say the Chinese are right or wrong. I'm to put yourself in this. We, we in New Zealand, it would be it's very important to stop being hypocrites. We're absolute hypocrites in life on, on these yeah. issues. And we waffle and waver. But if we really want to be a force in the world, we've got to call things as they are and be genuinely independent in our mm. uh, alliances and who we line up with. Well, speaking of calling things how they are, in my little dive, deep dive uh, on you, Ukraine, you in 2022 happened to um, seem to annoy somebody in the Ukraine because you appeared on a list of uh, Russian propagandists. And, I feel and, there's a story there, Matt. <laughs> well, I followed the the issues of Ukraine for a very long time, both when I was in uh, Parliament. And uh, I never, I don't read Russian. I've never, I've been to Moscow once for a parliamentary trip. I didn't meet anybody important. I was just a backbencher. Uh, Boris Yeltsin was in power. Um, so I've never had any 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 links with much with formally with, with Russia. But uh, I follow events. And uh, in terms of the, of the dissolution of the Soviet Union and NATO, I was very much focused. And what alarmed me, and because it alarmed so many commentators in the world, Western commentators, not just Russia, was the growth of NATO. So suddenly you have the dissolution of Russia. No reason the Warsaw Pact, which was the Russian-dominated uh, group of Eastern European countries, that dissolved. There was no threat. There was no longer a massive Soviet Union to be told we're going to come down and kill us in our beds. But suddenly NATO starts expanding, taking more and more countries. And then you th- think about it from the Russian point of view, you get a bit alarmed that closer and closer to our border, not just the biggest military alliance in the world, but nuclear armed. And then along comes the issues of the Ukraine, uh, which are complex. They're complex. We make them simple. 
a, ho a whole range of different nationalities within one territory, territory which has shifted backwards and forwards between Poland, Hungary, Russia. Um, so there's minorities questions in not just the Russians, the actually Russian speakers are about 30%. Uh, you've got Polish speakers, you've got Hungarian speakers, you've got conflicts between the Ukraine and and um, well, you've got the Nazi history of Ukraine, where a whole range of them fought on the side of the Nazis, as they did in the Baltic countries. So these issues are complex, and they come forward. And suddenly, uh, when the Russian army crosses the border in uh, February 2022, we're told that this is, oh, this has suddenly happened. Russia woke up one day and uh, had a war. The late unlamented on my part, Henry Kissinger, was an opponent on the same grounds that I had, that this was foolish to push NATO to have a coup, he called it a coup, in 2014, overthrow the elected government, which is what I pointed out, the elected government. The United States was involved, that NATO was involved in that. And then the arming began of the Ukraine, and Angela Merkel, uh, the late Chancellor of Germany, and the former President Hollande, Francis Hollande, they, they negotiated the treaty in the Ukraine to have the Russian-speaking areas, 30% of the population, as autonomous republics within the Ukraine. The Russians agreed to that. The Russian government agreed to that. They said yes. They didn't ask to take it over. They said just make sure that they got their might have their Russian language and their, well, it's a bit like you know, in Switzerland. So it was quite a good agreement. But what does Angela Merkel and Francois Hollande told us? The sort of things that I was saying got put on this death list is that we just use this as a breathing space to build up the Ukraine to a massive army. I mean, it's not, it's not little Ukraine. It's, it's, it's massively armed with latest modern tanks and missiles and guns and, and army. Um, and they kept pounding. They broke the agreement on Minsk. They kept pounding uh, the Donbass areas. So before the Russians came in and we, our television was screaming with Russians kill people, uh, and you know, they did kill him. <laughs> then this bombing. There was a war going on, which was nobody talked about. 14,000 people, not my figures, the United Nations observers and the European observers. 14,000 Ukrainians killed. A civil war was going on. So the Russians uh, intervened, right or wrong. Now, back to my international lawyer. lawyer international lawyers argued, were they, were they justified? Uh, was it a self-defense, such as Israel is claiming in the Gaza? Or was it aggression but it was complex and i i tried to point out that we hadn't had a discussion in our parliament on the history no context and that's got me on the list because i didn't just say russians at fault uh i was and the research material the commentary i was relying on wasn't russian C professor jeffrey sachs columbia university international expert uh, expert in the issues of Russia and Eastern Europe said this war is wrong. We provoked this war. He didn't. He didn't approve of what Russia did. He said, "I think they're they shouldn't have crossed the border." But he pointed out the context. Uh, a, 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 a Colonel Baud, who is uh, Jacques Baud, got him on the internet. Uh, was it a Swiss intelligence officer in NATO, fluent Russian speaker? He came out and said, "No, no, Russia didn't start this war. We did." And he's a NATO. He was a NATO intelligence officer. And so there were various people with different views. And my point was, uh, and I took it up with many of my ex-colleagues in the, the New Zealand parliament, and they just ignored me. Um, well, they didn't ignore me. They, they attacked me. Uh, so I was suddenly a Russian puppet. 
that disturbed me as well because what it said to me we're back in the situation in New Zealand that you know before our time and the, the Cold War was raging my parents were there if you had a country point of view you were suddenly a communist agent or a red or something so you couldn't have a discussion and on the Ukraine if you say well there's other viewpoints not just one maybe not two maybe there's three or four but let's talk about the history the conversation is closed down you're just repeating Russian propaganda points and I thought that was sad because the only way you get good policy is to have discussions to allow other points of view to do some research when I talk talk to actually the minute the person who was the minister of disarmament and arms control my old job Phil Twyford is a friend of mine I asked him if he'd read the Minsk agreements he said he had but I could tell that he didn't know he didn't he didn't understand one thing about them he knew nothing about the history of the Ukraine he knew nothing of the role of the Azov battalion nothing just what was given to him as talking talking about Russian propaganda that's what MFAT handed him here this is what you say that's not good enough in my opinion it's a complex historical issue and it's the same with what's happening in Israel and Palestine complex issues so talk about them go into the history uh and I have seen very little evidence and it's something that grieves me that our present parliament that I may be wrong I hope I'm wrong so arrogant to know what all of them think and what they do I've seen very little evidence in the past parliament of doing deep research on these issues and if I can just go to NATO how many New Zealanders know we're a global partner of NATO it's a big mm. deal if you sign up to the biggest military alliance in the world with a, a set of objectives they've named Russia as an enemy an enemy China as an enemy in the NATO documents and the discussions and in the uh the NATO summits which Jacinda Ardern went to Madrid 2020-21 I think and uh Chris Hipkins went to Latvia uh in 2022 was it 2023 maybe it was just 2023 <laughs> I can't believe it's almost 2024 he went to Latvia signing up to this doctrine now we haven't had a discussion in the parliament as a they've to be fair the the previous labor government weren't big on discussion in parliament on many matters Matt. so they they really were just continuing a trend I, they? I mean the, i mean what you've just described you could apply over to so yes, many things that have happened in this country in the last 6 years and it actually shows me as a democracy how far we've fallen in, in the sense, in terms of our discourse, where everything that you've said, I found quite fascinating. I've, you know, the research I'd done, and I know some Russian friends, I have some Russian friends, and they literally told me exactly what you've just told me. And they're too terrified to say anything because the political narrative yes. was set that this country was pro Ukraine. And if you said anything outside of that narrative, you were on the opposite side of the conversation uh, exactly. and no, open no, open to ridicule. No, I take your point. Look, we, we may perhaps perhaps another uh, mm. another conversation allow me but we may even if you and I or other people had a different viewpoint we should defend the concept of discuss these things put them Absolutely. up in the parliament and one of the jobs I would say of members of parliament is even to play devil's advocate let's say they think this is an important I'm on this side however here's here are some of the arguments of the other side think about them uh, discuss it and that shutting down of conversation you mentioned russia yes yes I've, I've had russian new zealanders who probably 
no one knows that they could be completely on the side of the Kiev government. That's not the point. They're frightened to open their mouth because if they if they have a, some other information, they'll also call you a Russian puppet, etc. That's a state of censorship, and that's mm-hmm. a state of terror. And you're probably thinking of the big issues like COVID and others of whether or not. Uh, we well, there's so them. many. Even even your friend Phil Twyford. I mean, he got he, they, there was that pro-Palestinian march, and he went there to express his views and his. I'm sure, I think, as a citizen, but as his capacity um, as a um, former minister. And I thought what he had to say was relatively balanced. And he was literally booed off stage and had to be escorted away. And I saw that as exceptionally sad, a really sad indictment for New Zealand. And and perhaps if you shift it to take the debate, because the other thing as a member of parliament and as a minister, I was minister for prisons, try to have a debate on the issues of what causes crime and you could get the same treatment that if you put forward issues you that you were accused often by members of other parties of being soft on crime i would say those people were soft in the head not wanting to <laughs> actually discuss the re- the real issues of what drives crime um and but and crime was one where you got shut down and and members of parliament were frightened to be seen as soft on crime and therefore take terrible decisions for popularity. No way to govern, no way to have a country which works on rational principles and and as a democracy. Uh, it's, it's censorship in every sense of the word. Mm. So let's segue into the current coalition. And you talked about before the importance of reading history and it's one of the things I've like learned as I've gotten older it's incredible uh what you know life experience brings you but also I've read a lot more history as I've gotten older I find it utterly fascinating and particularly what you you described before with Russia um the current Russian situation you know I was a teenager during Reagan and Gorbachev uh I was an exchange student to the United States um I literally flew out to the United States the day that Jeffrey Palmer was announced as our Prime Minister after David Longy had uh, stepped down. And I went, I got assigned to an American, a family on American Air Force Base from New Zealand. So you can imagine at that particular time, it was a little prickly uh, in that location. So I learned a lot then. And then I, you look now to uh, Putin and Biden. And I just wonder, before we before we dive into our current political situation, what are your thoughts on the comparisons between the sort of Reagan-Gorbachev versus Putin-Biden sort of standoffs? Same, different, more dangerous, less dangerous? Far more dangerous. I mean, the the thing about the Reagan-Gorbachev is that there was a a certain triumphalism in America, you know, um, capitalism, one communism being devanction, just nothing to do with it. The Russian system, in my opinion, just collapsed under its own weight. And if you actually read history, you could go back to someone like the founder of the Russian Bolshevik Party, or one of them, uh, or, or well, he wasn't the founder, he was, but Leon Trotsky wrote extensively on the fact that if Russia continued under the path of Stalin and developing a huge bureaucracy, it would collapse under its own weight, couldn't possibly it would just implode. He he said that, if, as I'm saying, point of reading history, he was writing about that uh, in the 20s and his opposition to Stalin and bureaucratization of the Soviet Union. So he said eventually it can it can do things, it can develop because it takes the state resources and it industrializes. 
but it stifles all initiative. It stifles under the weight of the bureaucracy. And that happened. So they sort of collapsed under their own weight. But put that aside, um, Reagan and Gorbachev, I think forced by public opinion in both countries, that let's get this sorted. Let's stop all this going to war. So there was, a, whenever people stood on the questions, there was a great hope that there was no need anymore to have these massive military forces lined against each other, threatening the whole world. That was the hope. And even Reagan, I mean, I'm a great, so many, I mean, we mentioned the Contras in Nicaragua. He was responsible for that mm. sort of policies that Henry Kissinger follows. But he also was moved. There were statements by Reagan saying, when he became aware of, we're going to kill ourselves, we've got to do something. <laughs> there was a great hope. Uh, at the present with, uh, well, it was Biden or Trump before him and, and, and Putin, is that clearly a decision has been taken uh was taken in the United States at the highest level to go after Russia. So then when you say that, the, a lot of people think, oh, you, you support Putin. Well, no, I'm talking about countries, what they're making decisions. If I was in Russia, would I be a member of Vladimir Putin's party? I doubt it. I'm a socialist. I'm not religious like he is. I'm not a nationalist. <laughs> sort of thing. That's not the point. His country has got documents in its hand which say, we want to split Russia up. There's books written on it. There's the that's what these people got to read. All the foreign affairs journal, all the decision making think things they call think tanks in the United States. The Russians read that. They see that they're a target. China has been declared a target. We want to take China down. Now, um, that's not the Reagan Gorbachev period, which was detente, and which was. We don't need nuclear weapons. Let's move. And even Reagan, they negotiated back to my uh, talk of the International Association of the Lawyers Against Nuclear Weapons. They signed treaties. They signed the the Limitation Strategic Arms, which is called START, which has been abandoned now. But under under both Bush, Bush Jr., and it didn't just start with uh, Biden, Bush, and Obama, the great peace candidate, the greatest spending on nuclear weapons America's ever had under him, and and drone. He's very fond of a drone too, Barack. And 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 uh, killing people, extrajudicial killings. Let's let's kill Marie and Matt Robson. They're talking at the moment. Send a drone. Um. So yes, it's a very dangerous period. It's a very different uh, period. And behind that is a confused public, and that's why. They pay a lot of attention to getting us worked up. So in New Zealand, the Russians are, are instead of talking about what 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 could New Zealand have done? New Zealand could have brought rationality to that and say that could the government could take a position. Well, we're against the Russian army crossing the border. Fine, but let's have a talk about all the issues. Let's have a talk of what was tried at Minsk. Let's have a talk about what President Putin put up in 2021 before the war to say, look, we don't have to have this. Honor the Minsk agreements. Ukraine won't join NATO and threaten us. Um, have some new, let's talk about it. Shut it down. Mm. No discussion. And nothing in our newspaper saying, oh, here's, here's a proposal by the dreaded evil uh, Putin. But, oh, it's, it's got some sensible points in it. The Western powers, this, uh, this, we get a lot of history. One of the things that I was accused of by, by representatives of New Zealand media, they interviewed me on the, the question of my opinion because they wanted someone who I was different from what everybody else was saying, just a unanimous war, Russia's wrong. Um, 
I was accused of supporting, you know, appeasement, that I would support Hitler's drive to these. So here's another stupid analogy that Russia was the equivalent of Germany, which had a declared policy of conquering the whole of Europe. Russia doesn't have that declared. That we might be suspicious that they want to, but there was no policy like that. And also, what they were leaving out, these ignorant people who interviewed me, I could tell, I'm, I didn't want to be arrogant, but I suppose I was, I felt they were ignorant, that the period of appeasement, that Western governments were seriously talking with Hitler. They were negotiating with him. They were reading his statements. They weren't, they were saying, and many of them, including Churchill, were saying what a statesman he was, how he dealt with the problems of Germany, the labor problem. The, the labor problem was smashing the trade unions. <laughs> no trade unions in Germany. Hitler, they were very, all the Western, many of the Western leaders saying, what, what a great statesman. He's, he's dealt with the labor problem. And they wanted to turn him against Russia. They wanted his to go in. To, so they're willing to give him bits of Czechoslovakia uh, so that he would attack Russia and leave their well, the British Empire, leave it alone. We often forget that, that what we were defending against Hitler was not just peace, democracy, democracy only in Europe, mm. but in the rest of the world. It was a slave empire. It was the British Empire. The yes, Indians didn't, didn't have a say. Nobody else had a say. And the uh, defence was to defend the British Empire. Anyway, we're getting... So, no, no, but see, this is, again, the importance of history. So let's cycle back to our current coalition. And you mentioned two things before. One, you mentioned in terms of the importance of history and actually having any politicians that are aware of any of these things that go on. And the other was um, in terms of having a devil's advocate, someone to play that contrary point of view. Now... As far as I'm concerned, I do believe that we have a political tuatara that could potentially fill that role, uh, who's now made his way back to Parliament in Winston Peters. Uh, and he's kind of, you know, kicked off in that direction. What are your thoughts with with Winston? Because he's, I mean, he was around when you were around. Yes. Uh, he's yes, and he's, we're, we're he's got a long memory. <laughs> we're contemporaries, and I, I have yeah. the honour of having been pushed by him once and he apolog- in Parliament, and he apologised, you know, physically pushed. He um, came and bought me a, a beer as a as a token of uh, peacemaking. This is a pretty New Zealand thing to do, uh, pretty male New Zealand thing to do. <laughs> but because uh, it was probably alcohol which fueled his problem in the beginning. Anyway, um, I think it's sad that he's there as the Deputy Prime Minister of New Zealand. I think it shows that we haven't made progress on the key issues. He's an obstacle. So here I'm being self-opinionated, and next day you can have him on the program. Mm. He can uh, say. So, no, what? Me. Why do you believe he will be an obstacle, and what because, respect? Because he's the ultimate uh, opportunist in politics. He doesn't care uh, the issue that he picks up on the principle of it. He doesn't believe in it. Um, will it get him enough votes from people from a, any sector of the community to get him into a position where you know he's in he's in power of some sort? So. He started off his party, the big attack, and we've forgotten was on the Chinese. So he was he was a responsible politician who used that old racist trope: two Wongs don't make a white. And when he was taken up on it, I think it was in the early two thousands. When he was taken up on it, he said, "Oh, it's a joke, you know? Is it a joke if you're Chinese? Two Wongs don't make a white." And then he, I remember being at a political meeting in about nineteen ninety five, and he pointed his finger at Howick, the Auckland suburb of Howick, where a lot of Chinese immigrants live, and called it Chowick, 
So he was building upon that sort of, oh, we don't like the Chinese. When people weren't frightened of the Chinese anymore, well, there might have been still residual racism, uh, he moved on to Muslims. So everybody was a Muslim. And I've seen him in Parliament just one time in Parliament when I was there. He accused a engineer, Iraqi engineer in Auckland, and another Iraqi. One of them as being the involved as an advisor or the police chief in Baghdad. This is at the height of you know uh, ISIS and, and worries about Muslim terrorism. No proof, nothing, no apology to these people. Which they had, they came to me. I took it up in Parliament, and I took it up, please. He was willing to destroy them. So I've seen him in his political career choose one issue, uh, and he he spots it. He waits, and then he just exaggerates. And there's a whole lot of people who say, oh, Winston's right, he's calling things as it was. And then when he gets in there, you know, the baubles of power, he doesn't do a thing uh, that's, that's, that's really at the core of what people are worried about, their insecurity. Mm. That's not to say that some of his policies can't be good. I mean, you know, that, mm. that do things as a party that... Um, so, But as a so politician... Yeah, so, I mean, so, right, so the political wrecking ball of Winston Peters to one side. Who else do you believe is is then left to take up the mantle of being able to bring these discussions to the table, whether or not they're in the current coalition or in the opposition, which I actually see is vastly more inexperienced than than what we have on. I mean, there is not a lot of depth on the bench, to be fair, Matt. No, that's, I I look. I've looked at things. I looked at. I come from the left wing of politics, so I looked to anybody coming out there. I looked at the Labour list, and I was appalled at, at the lack of um, anybody to stand up on uh, and, and really have a principal position and a clear position. Um, I mean, I felt that Christopher Labour caused its own demise. They, for, for instance. In my opinion, they didn't take up the central question of wealth inequality in New Zealand. It's an obscene, crying shame, and the, the statistics are there, the data is there, to show that the richest New Zealanders have got away with tax murder and and, and that wealth created by... Well, COVID showed us where the wealth is produced. We couldn't get by without the humble people stacking the shelves. We couldn't get by with all those humble people working. When I say humble, they don't beat their own chest in, in agriculture, in in our society. So all the nurses. Well, they've forgotten their working class roots and they, they've they gone and followed an identitarian sort of model. They've completely forgotten where they've come from. The lowest paid amongst us keep us going, not necessarily mm-hmm. the most wealthiest and who own property, etc. Now, getting at that and using that wealth, which is collectively produced, Collectively, that leads to you know accusations of uh, communism and and you know, and, and um, the wealthy jealous and that type of thing. But put that aside, uh, he neither Chris Hipkins or before him Jacinda Ardern would tackle that question. So when David Parker actually brought it up and said, at the root of our one of our problems of the ability to move on all of the key issues whatever they are, climate change, uh, health, education, growing the economy, you've also got to tackle wealth inequality. It's not just me, David Parker, saying it. Now, he he had a principal position on this. I, I spoke to him about it, and he researched it, and he thought about it. 
because it's just not in New Zealand. It's an international phenomenon. Uh, people, economists like Piketty have written about it. Uh, American economist uh, James Galbraith Jr. has written about it. a whole range of, of across the world. It was one of the things that came up in the in the British Labour Party in the big debates. It wasn't over Jeremy Corbyn. It wasn't just Jeremy Corbyn not being liked by this or that person. It was also a question over uh, they were taking up the question of inequality, much as what Parker did. So it's an international phenomenon. But anyway, he got shut down because uh, the leadership, both under Jacinda and under Chris, uh, were frightened to take up this question. That's the key question, not the posturing of of a Winston Peters skating on the surface of issues, finding easy solutions, blame Murray, blame old people, blame this person, blame that person. No, you talk about what are the issues, and David Parker, God bless him, he did raise that and put it in the front. Whether he can carry it through, because there's that dreaded thing of charisma. I'm sick mm. of charisma. There was a horse, as far as I know, who didn't we win a medal with the horse? Yeah, correct, yeah. The Mark Todd's horse. horse. Right. Blair, what, Blair, Blair Tate or Blair Tate? Or? No, that was Mark Todd. Mark Todd, okay. Okay, I'm not a great follower of all these things, but I knew there was a horse, and I liked the horse. Charisma. But how? who wants to be governed by charisma? Mm. You know, I mean... Uh, Adolf Hitler had charisma. I met a friend of mine, German friend, her mother, lovely person, uh, quite simple. I mean, not in the sense of intelligence, but you know, modest upbringing. She loved Hitler. <laughs> she, she didn't say it she, because why did she love him? He had such beautiful blue eyes. Now, that's not exactly a good reason for wanting to follow a politician, but he had charisma. Uh, that's what I was told. He had charisma. And so they go looking for someone. We go as New Zealanders looking for someone who's got charisma. How many times have people been fooled because somebody is, is a snake oil's charms? So I, I guess Winston Peters has got some of that X factor. I don't know. They've got a smile and, and they take him up. But that's not a basis for good government. So I'd rather have somebody who was modest and no charisma but knew what they were talking about and was telling me the truth. Yeah, well, I don't, I don't see that. But you're no. asking my my opinion. Well, I'm a little bit towards some of the Greens. That's all. Some of them, I've, I've, for instance, uh, I'll give you a name. I think Josefo Collins, who stood for the mayor of Auckland, uh, is genuine. He was as a councillor. He um, impressed me with the work he did uh, for his communities in in South Auckland. By the way, he spoke up on the council for uh, Aucklanders uh, and 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 working-class Aucklanders, uh, and now he's a member of Parliament, so we'll see how he goes. Yeah, but he would be interesting because, I mean, I see the Greens have been very much captured by sort of a neo-Marxist identitarian type. They've actually lost, again, they've lost, where they're not the party of Jeanette Fitzsimons and, and Rod well, Norman anymore. And in Efeso Collins that could actually potentially bring them back to that place. So I'd be, I'd love to get you back, Matt. I feel that you and I could talk for a long time on a lot of things. You're so I think we're going to bench that for 2024, and I'm definitely going to get you back. I've been talking to Matt Robson, former MP for the Alliance Party and lawyer for the International Association of Lawyers Against Nuclear Arms here on Counterculture. Thank you so much. It's been I've, – I've been riveted. I've just looked at the time and I thought, I've got to wrap this up. So thank you so, so much, Matt. I do appreciate it. See you next time. Thank you.
If you're heading away on a road trip this summer, remember you can take RCR with you wherever you go with our app. Download your favourite interviews to play or listen to our content live. I've had a few intercity journeys recently and it was great to catch up on all our incredible content that I'd missed when I've been either at work or playing. The app is available at the Play Store for Android or the App Store iOS for Apple. Good morning and welcome back to Counterculture. And as we do every Wednesday morning at this time, it is time to catch up with me, old mate Marty. Marty Gibson, how are you? Good morning, Marie. How are you? Good morning. I've got to start using more of a radio voice. (laughs) Oh, we've actually, it was nice. We caught up on the weekend. You cooked a very nice breakfast. Thank you. Mm, All right. Oh, it was excellent. It was excellent. You're still there and I I, uh, snuck over for a couple of days to to Gizzy. So it was good to go back to the old stomping ground. So we were able to have a little brief media matters catch up before this morning. So that's always a good thing. It's so fascinating. We mentioned it a few weeks ago. It'll be interesting to see how everything's sort of settled out. Mm. And I have to say, there is a lot of tantrum throwing going on at the moment, and it's not seemly. It's not seemly, but it's calculated, Mm. isn't it? I've talked before about sacred anger. It's it's very much uh, something out of the Islamic playbook, where if you burn a Quran, they'll set fire to embassies on other continents it's calculated to make people think very carefully before criticizing or wrong and it never goes two ways there's a bit of a valve where they are not nearly so sensitive as to insults they might give other people as they are to insults they receive themselves which is always dangerous as well Yeah, well, it's quite fascinating because, of course, I don't think this coalition is going to, well, they haven't had a honeymoon period so far, and I don't believe they're going to. Thomas Coughlin seemed to think that they're in this golden period where they're able to sort of throw that, this is how things are, and this is what we've been left with. Um, And Nicola Willis has had a little of that. But to be brutally honest, I think everybody knows what a cop case they have inherited. So I think that's, you know, it's like minutes taken as read. I don't know they do. You reckon? I don't think. When Grant Robertson was talking about all they'd achieved with his little soup slurping mouth, no one ever said to him, hey, well, yeah. As I often say, you borrowed $100 billion of extra debt. You took it from $60 billion to $100 billion. And so, yeah, Cochrane said uh, she has an uphill mountain to climb. Unlike the former Labour Labour government's Sunshine and Rainbows mini-budget of December 2017, which boosted family incomes and created new universal benefits like the Best Start and winter energy payments, Willis's budget looks to primarily be one of cuts. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Like like prudent fiscal management. That extra hundred billion of borrowed money. And now she's got to pay a bit of it back and she doesn't have it to spend. And I mean, there's a part of me that's cynical enough to think, you know, they're two sides of the same coin. Labor spanks the money with nothing to show for it to create climate change. And then uh, National go, oh, look at what those bad people did. Right, we're going to need some austerity. And that's how the um, financial position of New Zealanders has been steadily ground down. There's a couple of uh, other little quotes that tickled my fancy. Just for the listeners, this is called The Sweet Spot is a Great Time to Be in Government. Thomas Coughlin, Weekend Herald. In opposition, Prime Minister Christopher Luxon said Grant Robertson was the worst finance minister in history. A hyperbole 
to Nationals' embarrassment, the worst finance minister in history was probably their own Robert Muldoon. Well, I don't know. I, it's I, I, I think, uh, yeah, yeah. And I think um, our squealer is is giving Piggy a bit of a run for his money. Anywho, and the other quote that I quite loved as well, heading in that direction, it fiercely disputes that these are cuts because of the benefit rates will still be adjusted upwards. However, the fact remains that National will book two billion in savings by paying beneficiaries less money than they are currently getting. Then there's the issue of timing. December 20, one day after the December 19 anniversary of the fourth national government's economic and social initiative, an official name for the then finance minister Ruth Richardson's dramatic benefit cuts in 1990, often erroneously remembered as the mother of all budgets, which was in 1991. Yeah, because everybody has got, you know, that date tattooed on their shoulder to remember. There is going to be some uh, discomfort and, and I, I think that uh, it's a good opportunity for New Zealanders to show some initiative. As I said, you, you can eliminate crime, you can eliminate child poverty, you can um, do all sorts of things in your street. Yeah, yeah, you can. You can. So there's all this crying, of course, the, the FPAs or fair pay agreements, and I'm going to call them FPAs because, as you have said before, you know they use this language saying it's a fair pay agreement, remembering that these agreements, none have actually happened. None have gotten across the line. It took six years for Labor to actually get them. They had them on the table in 2017. They had to rush it through on urgency at, just before they you know, left the building, Elvis left the building. They haven't actually happened. So this is a rollback of legislation. And then you have this ridiculous leak coming out of Treasury, squealing, saying that National are going to be heading off at the pass these, I can't remember the acronym for it, but the, the due process in doing these in order to get things through in the 100-day plan. Well, the reality of it is, is that they're just rolling back something that that was a change the in legislation, something, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, it was an impact, and it's like, well, actually, there is no impact at all because it hasn't actually happened. So that, to me, is just pathetic pearl clutching. But the prize winner, the prize winner for for losing his Superman undies this week was Mike Munro. Oh yeah, I mean, I've I've whined about Mike Munro before. Just go away, yeah. Greasy little former press secretary of well, his Superman niece were obviously in the wash because he was oh he was not happy this week. I've got a lot of highlighter on that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> Where to start? Where to start? The article's called "Trashing New Zealand's Brand for Political Gain." Again, Weekend Herald. What leaped out at you? Pretty much everything. I probably highlighted about. Two-thirds of it. I mean, at the start, so building New Zealand's brand by doing what we can to influence for the better what people think and feel about us is profoundly important. Over time, successive governments have understood that and have got on with making New Zealand a desirable place to live, visit, and do business. Now, it doesn't sound like the last six years when you were Jacinda Ardern's chief of staff, Mike. You did the opposite of all that. Mm. And then he followed it up with, and as cliched as it might be, New Zealand's reputation for innovative ideas, fairness, tolerance, and looking after the most clean and green environment, along with long-standing rankings as one of the least corrupt countries, has helped to curate this image that pulls the world in. Mm. It's like it's it's all an illusion, Mike. It's like an arsonist critiquing the firefighters on how they're putting out the fire. Now, who made mention to something along those lines in the last week? Oh, right. Christopher Luxon. Anyway. Yeah. 
He then goes on to say, uh, winding back smoke-free laws, going after wages and conditions of our most vulnerable, there's that word that I cannot stand, vulnerable workers, instituting a raft of measures that will dilute our maoriness, repealing the ban of offshore oil and gas exploration. The world must be wondering what has possessed Luxon's government to launch this brand-trashing spree. Mm. No, Mike, it's not the world. It is actually a certain little band and clique of elites you know, that like to pop off to Davos once a year and pop whatever. Yeah, I mean, you can really hear in this that he was, I don't know, he was fully in on the reputation Jacinda Ardern had overseas rather than the reputation she had in New Zealand. He talks about the plan to mount a review of the Treaty of Waitangi principles. At least he says principles. Credit where credit's due. Staff undoing several Māori-related policies and practices. And then he says... This will disrupt a widely held perception of New Zealand's race relations that is encountered abroad, namely that we're a tolerant people and respectful of minorities. He's on brand talking about respectful of minorities. It's that upward-facing fist of Marxism where you've got to respect the proletariat, Mm. not the petty bourgeoisie. And what he's completely forgotten in all of this, of course, is that we are a democracy. And despite what goes on in the rarefied bubble of Wellington, New Zealand has spoken. And it's spoken quite definitively. And when we think about it, and of course they keep going back and comparing, oh, you know, that after the, the great success of 2020, Jacinda was handed that election on a COVID platter. Because yeah, make le- no mistake, this is a COVID election. Exactly. Because let's not forget that 18 only 18 months 18 months into that 2017 term, the womb was already beginning to turn in terms of popularity and uh, even the media was starting to be critical and she was starting to look shaky. She was starting to look shaky in her position. You could see that when she came back after maternity leave, that the imposter syndrome, I think, had started to set in. And then, of course, you know, we had that summer COVID happens, it just changed everything. It changed the mood of the people. And it's amazing what a solid dose of fear will do to a population in order for them to make radical and irrational decisions, which is what I believe a lot of Kiwis did in 2020. I wasn't one of them, but many did. Yeah, and many are still all for it. You know, I mean, I had my former economics teacher tell me, oh, I think they handled... uh COVID wasn't Helen Clark. <laughs> Are you well. sure? Sounded like Helen. I said, uh, really? And uh, I think he realised we were a little bit of an impasse. But yeah, he talks about also on the list of reputational threats is the promised repeal of the oil and gas exploration ban. Introduced in 2018, this bold move in support of New Zealand's climate change obligations was greeted with acclaim around the world. And, and this is the one that they're now... Uh, they're getting awarded Fossil of the Year or something. Yeah, Fossil, fossil of the Day Award at the summit. And actually, I was disappointed to see that the new climate change minister, Watts, for National, had just absolutely cucked. If you read his um, comments on that, he's got James Shaw syndrome, you know, where you, you give a narcissist an opportunity to get a round of applause, they'll trash their country. And James Shaw went around the world begging for agriculture to be included in our Paris Accord 
agreement despite it being specifically exempted. And that's um, going to cost us something like potentially $2 billion, $2.5 billion a year, which coincidentally is the amount of money that BlackRock was going to set up to fund Mm. our renewables. So we're giving money to these international socialist organizations that we then have to borrow off BlackRock, who are going to jack up our power and make short-term projects that are calculated to start crapping out when they sell them in the medium term. So Fran O'Sullivan also continued on with the theme as well. She went on a slightly different tack, but it was just uh, variations on the theme. Uh, so she has Luxon's challenge getting the business, uh, getting businesses on board. I thought it was quite interesting because I think he already has a lot of business on board. She said New Zealand needs deep reform, not more political point scoring. Well, it's politics, darling. They're going to do that whether you like it or not. You know, scorpions, remember scorpions, they will sting you. Uh, Chris Luxon's government has wiped from the political chessboard key pieces left by the Labour administration and a good deal of it of its most distinguishing moves. I couldn't quite figure out what she was referring to there, Marty. Any ideas? Well, everything they're trashing, I guess. She actually does admit a relatively hostile news media is also giving Luxon and his ministers no quarter. Again, oh, starting to see these little things creeping in, and it's starting with, yeah, I mean, Labour, but successive governments have under-invested in infrastructure, and, oh, yeah, it's going to cost more than they said, and, yeah, all that debt was bad, and it was a divisive government. She then continues on, too, to discuss, uh, and she sort of tries to draw a comparison that this government could potentially be like the Bolger government in office in 1993, However, she then sort of carries on saying whether it's growth, productivity, infrastructure capability, digital capacity, education, health or crime, the results are underwhelming. Uh, This does require fundamental reform to reboot New Zealand and take it off the path of decline. Yes, friend, that's right, it does. Luxon has also talked of wanting a partnership with business in the community to address the many challenges and turn the country around. Yes. So then she dives into a green paper that was released by Business New Zealand and it was commissioned by a crowd called Sense Partners, never heard of them, and they were talking about what they believed, the roles that needed to go around. And this is it says, but business also has a role. How does it make critical decisions and how does it respond to global megatrends? And it keeps talking about these global megatrends. What on earth is a global megatrend? And are they saying that if you don't carry on with what everybody else in the world wants to do, i.e. climate and insanity, you're going to be left out in the cold? Is, is this well, just what, another what, global What threat? I read into that was the global megatrend that they seem to be falling into step with is stakeholder capitalism. In essence, it recommends that businesses and politicians seek a common purpose in impending economic and social challenges. That's Klaus Schwab 101 for when you have a crisis that we've created. You know, you, you get the government and business together, which is, is fascism. Oh, um, fascism, that's right. Fascism. I knew it was on the tip of my tongue. Exactly. Did yeah. you see also on that page? Yeah. Did you... Um, See the article IRD on the hunt for 2.3 billion in COVID debt. And I know we've interviewed, I think uh, Paul Brennan did an interview maybe two weeks back of a lady who'd gotten caught in that, where they'd said, You didn't spend this on your business. And she'd said, Well, we are a business and we needed to eat. Yeah. Yeah. But 2.3 billion. And I mean, that's on top of the billions that are owed by beneficiaries who have the same thing. It's, and it's such a, 
filthy little sleight of hand, loaning money so it shows as a as money on your books to balance the books, but it's low, just sprayed out mm. to businesses that are going bankrupt and to beneficiaries who can never pay it back. Well, and the other thing that's happening now too is, of course, those COVID loans went out interest-free for the first, I think, was it a year or two years? And right. then, of course, interest rates, I mean, back when those COVID loans went out, those those rates were sitting at around 3.5%. But far from there now, I mean, I think the business rates are somewhere what's shy of 9 or 10. They could even be more. You've got a lot of businesses that if they did borrow that money, that's a scary place to be because well, you're now having yeah, to I mean, service a very the- expensive loan. Employers and Manufacturers Association Head of Advocacy, Alan McDonald, said he was not surprised by the figure given the tough challenges and climate for businesses. And he says a lot of those businesses just absolutely tapped out whatever reserves they had, obviously to support their own staff and themselves and keep the businesses going right through COVID. So no reserves. And do you remember those slimy little socialists around the time this first started um, kicking in saying, well, if a business doesn't have enough money to weather a couple of months of of tough times, then, you know. I you mean, shouldn't they, be in they, business. They probably shouldn't be in business. Mm. And and in the next breath, they'll moan about profits. Yeah, yeah. Which there they is, need to have a, a fat tail. And we're already seeing a number of businesses fall over. And some quite sizable ones uh, in recent months fall over. I think once, if the Christmas retail bump isn't as expected, having a business with a retail element, I can tell you right now, it is really sluggish out there. I, this is probably mm. the most sluggish Christmas I've ever seen. We are really, really having to fight and to convince our consumers that we're the place that you want to spend that dollar because they are really thinking about what they're spending. And I, I don't know about you and, and your crew, but I definitely know with the family here, you know, we've taken a really hard look over what we're spending this Christmas. We're taking some time away in the new year, which is not cheap. And we have buttoned everything right down. I mean, mm. we are not spending very much at all because simply we don't have that discretionary income to do so. And I don't think we are alone. I think we are like many families. Out well, there right the, now. they say figures show queries around redundancies and restructures doubled at the start of the year and peaked in May to June but now continued to be much higher than they usually were for the EMA, McDonald said. So if the number of people asking about that is doubling, ooh, that's not good. No, no, it's not. One of the things that I will be very intrigued about is to see how many businesses, if they don't get the bump, the summer bump, uh, how many will hang in there uh, once. Because I tell you what, I don't know whether you remember this from your days in business, but I can. I used to call January effing January. It was my most hated month of the business year because it was the month where they would defer GST payments because of those in retail business, right? And well, that was the reasoning, but really it's because they're all on freaking holiday and they don't want to have to deal with them. So they used to move the GST payment that would normally be made 28 December and they would move it out to 15 January. But the other thing that's also due at the end of January is provisional tax. And then you're looking down the barrel of a terminal tax payments that are also due with the end of financial... It's just a cluster, an absolute yeah. cluster. And when you've got Hate people it. running a country who've never, ever been in business, that just doesn't even register with them. 
No, they don't. And you've got to be optimistic to be in business. And that's what they've almost cynically tapped into by loaning out this $2.3 billion. With almost zero oversight. Like, I mean, I know that when we uh, took the wage subsidy to keep things going for our staff at the time, you just literally phoned up and they just gave it to you. Well, I've got that friend who said, I didn't vote Labour, even though they gave me $70,000 when the Gisborne floods were on. And he's in the building industry. Mm. Someone said to him, oh, have you applied for the flood relief fund? And he said, well, I didn't get flooded and I'm killing it. You know, we're busier than ever. He said, oh, no, you can still apply for it. So he applied for it and it said, is this a Maori business? And the brother's part Maori, so he ticked yes. They gave him 35 grand. No questions, no looking at the books. And then a couple of months later, he uh, looked at his bank account and lo and behold, there's another 35 grand there. Didn't ask for it. Yeah. Certainly didn't need it. No, it's there has just been no due diligence done. And it, and it's now time to pay the piper. And I think, so Nicola Willis has been talking about these fiscal cliffs. Now, what we're talking about are fiscal potholes. And man, there were plenty that I avoided, plenty that I avoided between here and Gisborne uh, on Friday and Sunday. Oh, right. <laughs> as well as fiscal cliffs, there are plenty of fiscal potholes and these will all come out to light. And again, it's, it's like... The media, that was one of the little themes that I saw. It's almost like they suddenly realised, particularly when they were talking about the infrastructure spending, Bruce Cottrell covered this off beautifully and one other, which it'll come in a moment, in terms of all of a sudden that things, particularly in Auckland and Wellington, have been this absolute pit of spending and money to actually achieve Sweetie fate, to be brutally honest. I mean, some of the some of the numbers that Cottrell had in his piece were eye-watering. Let's have a look here. Talking about the drive between Sarsfeld Street and Hearn Bay. I used to live on that. It's 900 metres long. It has 11 sets of aggressive judder bars, or as Auckland Transport would have us call them, traffic calming devices. I'm told each costs $300,000. I have one question. Why? I have the same question. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so this, of course, Bruce Cottrell getting off the path to nowhere. Past transport solutions just don't work. Time for something new. And he also looked at some of the things I mean, in terms of the city rail link. I mean, the city rail link is an absolute disaster. But here's the thing. Also, there is news that once completed, the city rail link's net operating costs will start at $220 million a year after the revenue collected is taken into account. So if it costs $6 billion to build, which is what he estimates it will once all the dust is settled, $265 million a year to operate and an annual revenue is projected at $44 million, who in their right mind would, would approve this as a business case? Exactly. But worse still, we're not talking about game-changing infrastructure project here. It's going to fund, that's going to fundamentally alter Auckland's lives. We're talking about a train line from Britomart and the CBD to Mount Eden, a distance of 3.4 kilometres. Mm. I'll tell you who would who would approve that, and I can't say whether they're in the right mind or not, is someone who believed that it was a good thing to do because climate change was too functionally enumerate to really go much deeper than that. So I'm describing, you know, mm. I guess both of our former glorious leaders. Well, so this is a really interesting thing that happened up at, was it the in Dubai, 
when you had the sultan who was up there that actually said that there needs to still be a focus on fossil fuels, like you couldn't walk away from those completely because you needed to have a backup when your alternative energy sources were not operating. Now, yeah, of which, course, and I talked about that article last week with yeah. the head of was it Genesis Energy saying that just as gently as possible. Hey, look, it, it, it's not realistic. No, it's not realistic. And the reason that, you know, you can have uh, Christopher Luxon saying, we are absolutely fixated on zero climate 2050, he doesn't have to worry about it. No. He'll be long gone. I just saw, actually, I had highlighted uh, the point that I made about the people who approve this sort of uh, thing being people who think train's good because climate change. Uh, he says, remember, the people behind these failed projects and failing organisations are the same people who have been forcing us out of our cars. In Auckland, they have taken hundreds of car parks off the street to make it difficult for us to park. Those car parks have been replaced by oversized pot plants, unused picnic tables and isolated bike stands. Footpaths have been widened and roads narrowed to limit cars. They're also making car travel about as uncomfortable as it can be. And then it feeds into that SARS yeah. road and, uh, quote. Because, of course, so much. And, I mean, John Key was lauded for his uh, National Cycleway Initiative, which was more of a tourism element. And yeah, you know, that's, so that's a project for when you want to cycle. And, and they're exactly. selling us these cycle lanes as for when people want to cycle, but they're not. They're for when they force people to cycle. And this and he covers that as well. We've been spending hundreds of thousands of dollars in Auckland alone to facilitate the journeys of the few two-wheeled travelers. But we're not exactly flocking to the bike lanes for obvious reasons. First, Auckland is hilly. The new very expensive bike lane between Otitha Valley Road and Constellation Drive north of Auckland is a beautifully built, but it has a couple of decent climbs, one of which is one kilometre long and reaches a 7% gradient. The average person riding their bike to work can't ride up that hill. Second, it rains a lot. Such conditions do not make for pleasant cycling. Finally, for those romantically dreaming of riding their bikes into work with the great majority of our workplaces, do not offer what are now called the end-of-trip facilities. Yes, that's the CBD's modern buildings will have bike parking, showers and lockers, but for the majority of us, such luxuries just simply aren't available. Having thrashed yourself through Auckland's hills and rain, how on earth do you intend to make yourself presentable for a day at the office. It is just not practical. Too true, Bruce Cottrell. Quite so. Yeah. Quite so. Interesting. Did you read when the chippies are down? Yeah, Did you read yes. that? Did you, know, you hear I, the I, eye roll? Oh, uh, just, you know what I think when I read this? And I noticed on that um, on that article about Kiwis prepare to fight government, there was Sophie Handford appeared again. I've, I've raised this with, with you before when she was leading the, pro the climate protests, but she was also working at the Ministry for Economic Development in, in the minister's office. So kind of protesting economic development while working in economic development. She's 22. She's going to be a pain in the butt. I sort of thought when I was reading this thing about Chippy as well, you know, was sort of saying... I didn't take the election result personally. I think it was a reflection of the fact that New Zealanders have had a tough time with COVID and the cost of living and a whole lot of other things, and we're just looking at something different. As I was reading it, I was thinking, dude, and I think this is about all young politicians, you really need to have that time 
in the fetal position confronting your, your shadow, realizing, oh my gosh, I thought I was so good, but there's so many parts of me that lie and parts of me that are ego-driven. And it's a, such a dizzying thing to do. And, I, I, you know, you tend to do it between 40 and 50 if you're healthy, earlier if you can, but it's tough to do that. And, uh, yeah, that's the thing about those student, politi- the young politicians. You you listen to them talk. Why, Titi? You listen to them talk, and there's just not that humility that comes from the the fear of God being the beginning of wisdom. And I, I that never made sense to me, that saying. But eventually you get to that point where you think everything I do matters. And so you become so much more cautious in what you do. And I would I think the best thing for for uh, Hipkins would be just to take a little bit of time and and allow maybe you were a monster and you just couldn't see it. Maybe that could be something we could wish Santa could bring, a little bit of self-reflection to go with this cluster B. It would be nice if there was a bit more wisdom Mm. to balance the intellect with people all through everywhere. You have to be intelligent to make a nuclear bomb, but it's not necessarily wise. Same with stirring up racial hatred. You can do it. Might achieve your aim. Not the best thing to do. No. Where are we going next? I'm going to catch up with Karina Shields once we're done here because I want to get her take on Departi Māori and the swearing-in ceremony. And, I mean, it's sort of old news. We've all seen it. I personally deeply embarrassed by the whole thing. Mm. It's just, it was theatre, it was sideshow, it was demeaning. And I think that there are a lot of Māori out there that looked at that and went, mm, no. And again, much. it's extreme sensitivity to any insult to them and just feeling free to just trample all over Kopapa in another place that's hundreds of years old. Oh, absolutely. And also to this whole rewriting of what it is, like this whole thought of Kopapa, but also tikanga and it's like it's it's a sometimes thing so they've had this call to arms and it ordered so to party Māori do that we talked about it last week the really inflammatory poster with two pistols and Shane was told that he didn't understand modern Māori art by Debinari Wapaka there was in the Sunday Star Times we will not back down young Kiwis prepare to fight government. And this is the effect of all that posturing. This is Virginia Fallon. As the new government's policies continue to divide, some say they've galvanised a generation to battle for their future. As This is how it starts. Jay is Māori, 23 years old, and finally happy in a body. He says God got wrong in the beginning. So you're the a re- narcissist without saying you're a narcissist. God's wrong. It gets, it gets better. Three, he says, I think that's what you call a hat trick. He's referencing to the different ways in which he's been targeted by new government policies. Then he lists a few more personal descriptors. He's worried about the environment, and he recently became a civil servant and catches the train to work. Basically, I'm I'm the living example of what the government wants to cancel. Lucky me. It's like winning the lottery, but the prize you get is effed over. Oh, Jay, sweetie, you, you're just about to walk a mile in my shoes for the last six years, love. Okay, so get your steps in, darling, because it's going to be a long three years for you. Yeah, I mean, less than two weeks after Aotearoa's new coalition government was sworn in, the country is facing both a review of the Treaty of Waitangi. There it is again. It's not a review of the Treaty of Waitangi, Virginia Fallon. You disingenuous little weasel. 
It's a review of the principles of the treaty. It's quite a different thing. One was Hobson in 1840. The other was Geoffrey Palmer in 1980. It's the Geoffrey Palmer in 1980 that we're having a look at, darling. It's not a subtle difference. And a parliamentary debate about whether the nation should hold a referendum on co-governance with Māori. So yeah, in response to that, protest marches and convoys were organised around the country on Tuesday. And it goes on to say, Labour leader and former Prime Minister Chris Hipkins this week criticised many of the policies for taking New Zealand backwards. They reflect a view of the world that probably should have been ditched in the 60s. I love that actually following on the country on Tuesday, at least 600 demonstrators walked to Parliament grounds and more than 1,000 people gathered at other sites. And I'm thinking, is that it? Is that it, Virginia? Because I know that mm. I went to some of these protests in Wellington about some other thing, and there was a lot more than 600 people there, and you all told us we were a river of filth. Yes. Anywho, it carries on over the page, and it then dives into rattle of paper. Nick Panther believes furious is a better word to describe how he's feeling. The 22-year-old voted for the first time this year and is quick to admit it wasn't for any party now in government. I get that people wanted a change in power, and that's part of democracy. Well, I'm, I'm glad you understand the concept, Nick. Excellent. Gold star for you. I'm not pissed off about that or a sore loser, but this is going too far. Painter joined the protest on Tuesday and is more than ready to be part of more. Waitangi Day is shaping up to be a flashpoint for action, he says. Pakia voices should never drown out Māori ones, but now we have to join them. That's the best thing we can do with our privilege. Make sure Tangata Whenua know they're not alone and make sure the government knows that as well. Mm. When I was had my brief return to study uh, in a very, very woke course, uh, I, I did say, uh, do you think that it's white privilege? And everyone leaned forward on their seats, eager to hear me flagellate myself for being white. Their looks turned to horror when I said, do you think it's white privilege that as white folks, if something's rotten in our culture, we debate it. And if it uh, isn't serving us or if it's bad, we cut it out. Whereas what we impose on Māori is this patronising idea that their culture is absolutely perfect and anything bad that happens to them is someone else's fault. We essentially take agency off them to make those changes themselves. There's a few elements of tone deafness, you know, like, and I know it's ceremonial, but taking patus uh, into parliament, which has, again, that tradition of hundreds of years of no weapons, and, uh, you know, it's a little tone deaf for a culture that, for whatever reason, beats children to death at a rate that's uh, a national disgrace, that I'm more interested in hearing about in terms of its damage to our reputation than, uh, well, the other things that have been pearl-clutched about. Oh, I know. I mean, instead of uh, calling it Pākehā privilege, I'd much rather call it public service privilege because I think that's what it really is. And the article goes on saying Taryn, who, like Jay, doesn't want to her last name used due to her public service job, says the government has massively underestimated the anger and the power of her generation. They've got a fight on their hands now. Their policies are going to have the opposite effect of what they want to do. The 20-year-old says that she and her peers have been distressed, then appalled, not just by the government, by other New Zealanders' support, its policies. 
It's been a wake-up call, she says. Wellington can be a bubble of liberalism, and we've realised the rest of the country isn't like that. It's been a really depressing shock to learn how racist and conservative Aotearoa really is. I think she hasn't quite got the democracy memo yet. Well, as I said, I uh, was chatting to a a plumber who's a black South African this morning, and I said to him, are you hearing a lot about how racist New Zealand is? And he just smiled and said, New Zealand is not racist. Not at all. And I, I think that's true. I've, I've said in the past what Māori sometimes maybe uh, experiences racism, and which isn't to say that they don't face any racism. And, and certainly in the 60s and before that and even beyond, they did. Okay, so <laughs> there's an olive branch. But I think a lot of what they currently experience is racism is the visceral reaction of white New Zealanders who've got a proud cultural history of abolishing slavery to being talked to like slaves. People you can take the fruit of their labour off without reciprocity and you can denigrate their whakapapa on the basis of some historical slight and if you have a baby with one, they've got your mana, so so they're not slaves anymore. Uh, If you line the way... Māori leadership talks in the denigrating way they talk about New Zealand taxpayers, ordinary New Zealanders, and that attitude, it lines up worryingly closely. Well, and I think the other thing that they're concerned about as well is this is also too, uh, they, Rawiri would like to have you believe that he speaks for Māori. Winston Peters has pushed back against that and says, no, you don't. You don't. And you just need to look at the current cabinet. I think there's, in the current cabinet at the moment, 35% of current cabinet is Māori. Yeah. 25% under Jacinda Ardern, far higher. But, but obviously, according to Rawiri, not the right kind of Māori. What well, is the right real... kind, Rawiri? Well, the right kind, I'll tell you what the right kind is. The right kind is the school of Kahawai kind, where they all think the same and they're managed by Māori leadership in a traditional way, as they were. And something that is never really discussed is that around the time of the land wars, around 50% of Māori identified themselves as aligned with the Crown or Kūpapa. They were, hey, no, bro, to their cousins who were like, we're going to, you know, don't die like an octopus, die like a hammerhead shark, you know, fight, fight, fight. And they were like, hey, you know, I'm pretty happy not having to worry about a lack of food and my neighbours coming over the hill to destroy us. You know, there were plenty of Māori who enjoyed that law and order. Although mistakes were made, I'm not saying it was perfect, a lot of those kind of Māori who I guess Rauru would think are the wrong kind, they're the ones who buggered off to Australia. They're the ones who now live in Texas, and, and they're still proudly Māori, but they're individuals. They enjoy private property rights. Then this leads into the desecration of the exhibit at Te Papa on mm. Monday. Again, embarrassed. I just thought that was disgusting. I thought the, uh, was it the curator of Te Papa who came out and said they how disappointed they were because that is a space. They have that there proudly because they were creating a space to open up discussion on mm. these matters. You know, I looked at some of the coverage on this. I watched some of the TV coverage. And from what I could see, well, the ones that they were certainly dragging away, weren't a lot of Brown Brothers there. 
Oh, really? I didn't see that. Well, there was that unholy alliance between sickly, pencil-necked Pākehā Marxists and the Uruera, let's start Hamas, Māori division kind of folks. And it's just, again, extremely disappointing. And I think they themselves will be patting themselves on the back because they've gotten to the headlines and they've scored a point and they've done all of these things and what a what a win it is for them. I don't think, again, as that young Taryn in the previous article said, we live in a bubble in Wellington. Yes, you do. And I think you'll be surprised how many New Zealanders will be looking at that at Te Papa this week and will be going, shame, shame well, on you. The thing is we are so at cross-purposes. You know, we're not re- we haven't even defined the terms of the debate. So we're talking about different things for a start. I was really, really pleased that uh, Donna uh, Pokere Phillips came on the panel with me and Cam last week, and it, it got a bit heated. I mean, I, I've met Donna previously, and, and I got a feel for what sort of person she is. She's a really good person. She's a proud Māori. Awesome. And a former candidate for the Māori Party. So yeah, she's a for, yeah. former Māori Party candidate who would be in Parliament now if she hadn't have disagreed with their jabby-jabby kind of tendencies and not questioning that. Their alliance with uh, Big Pharma disturbed her a bit, which I thought was testament to her character. But, yeah, she, so, yeah, I mean, Cam being Cam said, you know, Māori means nothing to me. And she said, well, you live in New Zealand and it's a Māori country, so you sh- should learn. Then I think later in the discussion, Paul Brennan s- said something about being less interested because he felt compelled. And I think she had a moment where she thought, actually, yeah, if the aim is to get more people to speak Māori, then maybe forcing them is going to be counterproductive. You know, we finished on a really nice conciliatory place. And and I think all of us keen to come back and have another go. I hope to get a lot more conversations like that on RCR. And I think Mm. that they're they're going to be so useful because they're just not happening. No, they're not. They're not happening anywhere else. And and I mean, with that point that uh, Paul made, and I know you and I have had conversations about this. I've just been back up in Gisborne and spent some time with family, and I have this conversation often with my aunt. And one of the things that we've often talked about, and I get frustrated because I've actually pulled back the amount of te reo that I use in my day-to-day life. I used to use quite a bit, but it was always just stuff that I'd always done. And I've actually pulled back and stopped doing it because it just all of a sudden was made with that compulsion to feel inauthentic. Yeah. Yeah. It it felt like you're making a point rather than using a beautiful word or or a word that captured what you meant to say better. And I mean, our family's always used Māori words because my grandfather was fluent because he used to um, get paid by Māori road workers in the Waiwaka Gorge to read them their mail. And they told him about how their parents or grandparents had uh, told him stories about crossing the rivers without getting your feet wet on all the bodies and things like that. So you learn Māori from your Māori friends. Mm. And they it's just like when you sing, you know, when you sing off key to, with a Māori there and they wince theatrically. <laughs> it's a bit like that if you, you know, if you keep your accent and forget the R, E, E, O, U. Yeah. You know, so I um just earlier, you probably didn't catch it, but I see I have an insistence to play it's December. So I am playing Christmas music. The Christmas, the first Christmas song that I've opened with, and 
strap onto your boots, people, because there's another one coming. I uh, dug out uh, Billy T. James's It's a Mighty Christmas. We used to play that all the time when I was in radio in the 90s, right? All the time. It was up there. I'm pulling out all the old standards that were very, very popular back in the day. That was one of them. I don't think that one appears on mainstream media rotates because even though it's Billy T, it doesn't fit the prescribed vision that these new new Māori have of themselves. It's a brilliant song. It's happy. It's joyful. It's fun. And bah humbug to all of these. You it's know. gone the way of uh, Baby It's Cold Outside, hasn't it? <laughs> oh, see, that's what I was going to dig out for next week. <laughs> yeah, you've got to. It's so much fun. And you've got to be able to, to laugh and sing and I remember those parties. Now, now there is a segregation almost that gets forced, and that segregation is coming from that Māori elite. And I hate that wedge that they're trying to push in between families, in between communities, in between workplaces. And it's just got to stop. We just well, need to put the hands up and say no. Yeah, we're not okay, doing. We're not playing this game anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's really difficult for Māori who disagree because. It's so easy for what they say to be misinterpreted as being anti-Māori. And I think there's probably quite a few ultra-conservative, you know, probably, you know, I mean, I'd hate to brand people racist, but, you know, that that part of it who's enjoying uh, hearing Shane Jones tell uh, Waititi that he, he looked like he had a mutton bird on his head, and they might be mistaking that as being anti-Māori. It's not anti-Māori, it's, it's that... They're going to get. A, they feel that there's going to be better outcomes for Maori if they don't go into ethno-nationalism and Marxist identity politics. It mm. still leaves them plenty of space to be authentically Maori, and uh, more power to them for doing that. And the thing is, with um, I just look at Rawari, and it's almost that that performance. It, it was almost like he was wearing a costume. It's laughing. Yeah. 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 Anyway, uh, hey, we've got some feedback, my friend. Oh, is it that time already? I know. I just looked at the time. I was like, oh, it's that time. We do have some feedback. We've got lots, actually. I'm going to do all the general feedback for counterculture and you and I. Uh, I've got this one from George. Egypt closed the southern border because they did not want Palestinians crossing into Egypt. Uh, this one, again, is from Keza. Enjoying the show. Perhaps your learned guest is unaware that Palestinians would not sign agreements due to the extreme terms demanded by Israel. This is all in regards to my interview with Anne-Marie Waters. Islam is at the gates of England and Muslim advance guard are inside the gates. That's from George. This is in regards with Anne, I interview with Anne. Conservation Department should breed an army of de-sexed cats to invade forests to kill all other pests. Oh, there's an idea. This is for you and I. You guys are awesome. Keep it up. Oh, thank oh. you. And again for us, I read in stuff yesterday that New Zealand has elected a far-right government. Well, of course, stuff would say that, wouldn't they? Oh, dear. Oh dear. I then, of course, played uh, Fairy Tale of New York last week as um, the song going out. The song has now added poignancy, don't you think? Not a dry eye in the house. Rest in peace, Shane. You are now reunite, uh, reunited with Kirsty McCall. Merry Christmas, counterculture team. You're the best from Beth. Merry Christmas, Beth. Mm, Merry Christmas. Did you hear the interview I did with Professor Anandis Chowdhury? No. You need to listen to that. It was oh. good. You'd enjoy it. Um, Anandish had a really interesting uh, theory at the end of it in terms of the COVID response. And he his 
uh, thing was is that instead of, instead of asking your GP whether or not you should have had the COVID jab, you should ask your GP what should... they're re- recommending. What they're recommending? Yeah, what they're recommending. <laughs> oh, I think it might have been a clip came out as a clip, what they're doing for their family and friends. And on that, I say this, quite a few people, as said, uh, Julie said, I don't trust GPs, don't have one, don't want one. Nairi said, all Michelle Baker, oh, I love it, all Michelle Baker is interested in is feathering his own nest. Cynthia said, your average GP still in the system is one of the last people I'd go to for health advice and stop paying attention to mainstream media years ago, thank goodness. Uh, Steve said, trust no one, including GPs. Isn't that just so sad? It's, well, it's dangerous too. Because it is. It is. And in the majority of uh, situations, it's worth listening to your doctor. You know, it's the problem with the idea of conspiracy theories. If you can't trust the government to give you accurate data on the health outcomes of their mandated medical treatments, then, you know, you might look up at... Uh, at jet trails in the sky and think, well, maybe they are dropping nanoparticles of barium and aluminium on me. Can I trust them to tell me how dangerous Teflon is? Is the 5G network really safe? And and those are legitimate questions that we should be able to ask and the government should present us with data rather than pejorative. Mm. This one here, whew, I don't know about this comment. Love your work, Marty! Exclamation mark and in brackets. And of course, Marie Loveheart from Kate, relative. <laughs> oh, Kate's my sister. <laughs> uh, thanks, Kate. Bless. Thanks, uh, thanks, Kate. I, I, I maybe I shouldn't have said that. Oh, of course. We're all about the truth here. We are, we are. Hi, Marie. Excellent discussion with Anne-Marie Waters. Thank you for your efforts from Peter. Loved your show, especially the heartwarming to hear someone speaking up for the plight of animals. That's from Ardness. Yeah, that was good, actually, Marie. I, thought, I meant to say that to you. I, I remember doing a story uh, 12 years or so ago about SPCA workers uh, saying how often they go into to, uh, houses where there are mistreated animals and the kids aren't looking much better. The uh, child, youth and family, whatever it, it was called then, whatever it's called now, uh, Oranga Tamariki, were saying, oh, we're going to get a memor- memorandum of understanding together. I'd be interested to know how much further that work's gone. Not very, I would No, get. I wouldn't have thought so. But people who are dickheads to animals, you know. Yeah, indeed. Uh, this one's for you and I. I was disgusted at the discussion. I saw the clip of Marie and Marty talking about the whistleblower data. Shameful. Sorry you feel that way, but I sort of kind of stand by it. And we've now had Barry on with Alistair. It is a pity. I will certainly, I don't, I'm not going to back down on this. I think, unfortunately, the people that presented and brought that data to the public sphere painted it and painted him in such a way that I don't think was flattering. He sounded cogent and sharp. And in fact, I learned so much more with his interview with Alistair on Monday than I did with the interviews yeah. that were done previously. And That's my five cents worth. You've got to protect your sources. Uh, there'd be a lot of people in the, uh, in, in the public sector, say ACC workers, who were disproportionately uh, given exemptions from being jabbed because they were getting the phone calls. It's going to give them some pause for thought before they come out and speak. And uh, I guess if, if you're one of those people listening to to that, you know, we, we understand uh, the need to protect sources. Absolutely. Uh, one last one, of course, from Mike. Can't, we can't have a 
feedback without Mike. Uh, Mike, hi Marie. Well, wasn't Anne the cat lady brilliant? Yes, she was, Mike. Everything she said about desexing and how the problem should be dealt with was so on point. I can't think of a better way and it would also be more cost effective in the long run. You were right about the love for people and their cats and how children want to pet them when they see them. This is a very loving animal who, who cared for properly, although they own you, you don't really own them. And what a lovely lady um, Anne is. Marty, it took me three very strong attempts to give up smoking in Australia. I ended up getting Champix tablets through my doctor at a time, and they were a little bit like LSD at night with weird dreams, but they did work in conjunction with the reading material. I haven't had a smoke since the 9th of February 2014. Good on you, Mike. And I don't ever want another one. I did, however, dream about smoking for a while after giving up and often woke up looking for cigarettes when I opened my eyes. Not a good look, as it was the first thing I did when I was smoking. Yuck. Mm. Uh, He also goes on here to say, Marty, bad luck uh, has always been the cause of many deaths. I'm sure it has been on many coroner reports. It would have had a lot to do with gang members shot in Auckland, and then his death was registered as COVID death. I would have called that bad luck, surely. Marty, you really are a modern-day Juno with self-awareness. They didn't even see the shift coming in the election. They live in a modern-day Juno land with only one perspective and one side of the story. Well done, you guys, as usual. All the poignant issues brought out. I love the point about the fearless leader saying something. I feel the same way when I hear it. Poor English skills. And that's from something. the leader. Yeah, something. Oh, that's right. The leader saying something. Mm. That's right. Something I feel something. vaccinated. That's right. Poor English skills from the leader of the country. Cheers from Mike. Oh, thanks, Mike. Lots of feedback this week. And uh, just to finish off before we head away, because, of course, we were both up in Gisborne, and on Monday, and you actually did attend, was the celebration of the life of Norman McLean, who passed uh, 10 days ago. And Norman, if you are from Gisborne and you've spent any time sort of around schooling or the art scene in Gisborne, you will know Norman. And he was a taonga that has now been laid to rest. And he was an incredible man. He taught Yeah, really a bon vivant and uh, a life well lived. And uh, he, he didn't have kids and he's one of those people who really you'd have to say, used the freedom that they had afforded him in a way that did so much for for so many young people that he, he might as well have for the influence it's it's having. Oh, massive. So uh, my brother, one of my brothers was taught by him and he had a huge impact on my life. And having lunch, my sister-in-law took classical studies from him. She said she, he made her see the world that she would never have Looked yeah, at. no, really. Uh, he was a he was a, a good. I thought of him as a good friend. He he roped me into being in Macbeth just before I left Gisborne, which is a wonderful experience. And I mean, he was just so all, all of those people in that theatre group, so sharp and so <laughs> so committed to to what they're doing. But yeah, my brother uh, had him as a teacher. He was at school when I was at school, but I. I'd uh, been encouraged to take science rather than classics, and in hindsight, I, I wish I'd. Uh, yeah, I'd wish I'd uh, kept up with the classics. Maybe. Yeah, I had him um, from a th- theatrical point of view. I took drama at the girls' high school, and he would uh, often come over and relieve if the drama teacher there was away. I did lots of drama back in the day, and this time of year, being Christmas, he little stories with Norm. I think I was in the sixth form. 
and he was asked to do a nativity play by the Holy Trinity Church, which is the Anglican, big Anglican church in Gisborne, and he was a congregation member. So he pulled together a cast of characters from uh, all of us around 16, 17 years old. And in fact, one of the leads is now still a actor here in New Zealand, a mainstream actor in New Zealand. Instead of doing the classic nativity, because that wasn't Norm, <laughs> Norm wouldn't mm. do that, he did one called uh, The Business of God Government, and it was a satirical take on the nativity, and I was the innkeeper, the very grumpy innkeeper from Bethlehem that turfed out Mary and Joseph and threw them through <laughs> Threw them in the, the, the stables. So it, that, that was vintage norm. Rest easy, my friend. Yeah, a life Very well lived. We will do this all again next week. And we'll actually, I think next week will be quite reflective. We'll have a little bit of a reflection because it by this stage, power. yeah, the gestation will be complete. It's a good nine months and we can look at the year that has been and uh, see what crops up in the papers and you know, talk about moving forward before we head away on the break. So to make sure you don't disappear, we will be back next year with Media Matters, but I will be back in just a moment with Karina Shields. So thank you very much, Marty. Yeah, thanks very much, Marie. Uh, have a good good Christmas and we'll be in touch, of course, but keep those letters coming in and uh, we're interested in hearing what you'd like to hear more about because we'll be scratching our heads a bit, I guess, and thinking what we're going to do next year. Indeed, 2057 is the text number and inbox at realitycheck.radio is email. Karina Shields coming up here next. It's time for the Woke News of the Week. Time now for a very special Woke News of the Week. Joining me now, and it's actually quite good to have a catch up before the end of the year, Karina Shields. Karina, what is going on? Oh, we are in a time of chaos right now, honestly. I've been watching things for the last week with Party Māori, and it's just blowing my mind. Tell you what, they're certainly throwing the widow out of the cot, aren't they? They are, and it's just the media are hyping them up to. A lot of it is driven by mainstream media, giving them this attention. Mm. So so let's start at the, at the beginning. I mean, that sideshow at the swearing in at Parliament, I am sorry, I was embarrassed. So was I. Honestly, they shouldn't have let them in the door because they knew what the intention was before Te Pāti Māori even got there because they made their intention clear before they even got there. So they shouldn't have been let in. Hune Haraweta tried this before and he got kicked out of the house by the Speaker. So knowing that, why did they even let Te Pāti Māori in? Yeah, yeah. And just and the, 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 with all the headdresses. Oh, honestly, I said in Kiwi Farm, one of the working dogs said, is he wearing a road coat, a dead wicker? <laughs> what is he? Insanitating. Yeah. And it was just a sideshow. It was really embarrassing. And I think it just it just goes to show the level of respect that they have for the process. Exactly. There is none. It's a total lack of respect. Mm. Not just that. I saw a photo of them all dressed up. You could not get more cultural appropriation into one photo. No, they're talking about other people and they're doing the exact same thing that they accuse others of doing. 
Well, as Winston said, Rawiri is so decolonized that he has to wear a cowboy hat. And you had Hannah, you know, with her beret and uh, her black watch tartan. Again, in, in Kiwi Farm, I, I said that Debbie looked like she'd gone and stolen something off the clothesline at Gloria Vale. It was just insanity. a whole lot of cultural appropriation. They just made a mockery of, of the whole thing. But the most upsetting thing for me is that they go in there and they talk about pledging oath to Te Triti and to Mokopuna, yet Te Pāti Māori have remained silent about baby Nario, about the at least 57 children that have been killed since Oranga Tamariki was created. So where has your care for, for Mokopuna been before last week? Yeah, no, indeed. before that, after that... There's been no concern for Mokopuna at all. Well, and in, and if that were the case, a lot of this, you know, that they will they would decry that a lot of this comes down to funding. But as you've discovered, uh, there are certain trusts that uh, are very closely connected to, to Party Māori who are exceptionally well funded that I would have thought would be able to put things in place to protect Mokopuna. But mm, is there anything happening in that space? And I'm talking about the Waipareta Trust here. As far as I know, there isn't. There isn't. And thankfully, Winston has brought that up, that they're going to be investigated about that because it hasn't been brought up enough. It's been swept over. No, even Gwendolyn Keel, who's from Charity Services, who was meant to be investigating all of that, she was running as the Port Waikato candidate before the election. So she was off on leave in the lead-up to the election, and then when it came about that they were having a by-election for Port Waikato, all of a sudden Gwendolyn Keel's not standing and she's gone back to her job at Charity Services. Uh, yeah, no, exactly. Did she actually stand as a way to not hold Waipareta to account and to party Māori to account for using charity money to fund political campaigns? Mm. And, and that's before we even get into the debacle. It was at the Manyariwa Marae. So there is, yeah. and I, I, I can't help, the cynic in me, the cynic in me can't help feeling that all of this are cheap parlour tricks to distract people away from what is potentially the rat in the kitchen. Yeah, they're just distracting people from everything. And the thing is, is that, they are the main perpetrators of the racism that go on. They are a minority voice. 2.8% of the population voted for them, and they're not even all Māori, but apparently the media have given them this great big platform and this great big voice to speak for the majority of us when the majority of us are going, we don't believe in anything you say, we don't believe in anything that you do. Yeah. And if what they about were, our voices? Well, if they were all Māori too, at 2.8%, that only represents about uh, 15% of Māori. And I know they say, oh, yes, we have a mandate because we have six seats. But, you know, look, we can play some statistical gymnastics here to actually cover that. And, you know, fair cop to them. Yes, they won those six seats. But as you and I have discussed in the past, and I know I've had this conversation with Di, the pickings were pretty slim <laughs> when, exactly. it came, when it came to those just, seats. Yeah. yeah just a so, tiny bit. Just a tiny bit. So then, of course, you know, they talked about the threats in terms of dis, um, unrest, and that happened a couple of days ago at Te Papa. Uh, a group went in, abseiled down the large display there of the Treaty of Waitangi, and 
not only defaced it, I'm sorry, they've actually, I think they've destroyed it to Papa will be really struggling to fix that. I, I'm again, it's like really embarrassing. Yeah, it is, it's really embarrassing. And what we've got is we've got extremists on both sides. So Patsy Moldy cannot blame one side here for the things that are going on because they're the ones throwing this racism stuff out. And now they've wrapped up a whole group of Moldy to start accusing the bulk majority, uh, the majority of Moldy, that we're all racist too. If we say something online, you know, it's mm. an automatic assumption that you are a stale, pale male because you're saying something that we don't agree with. And it's like, hold up. That is completely not it. You guys are just jumping to conclusions because Te Party Māori have wrapped you up into believing that everybody is racist. And we are not. We just have logic and we see things with common sense and we understand that we need to work together. Mm. Mm. And one of the things I have certainly discovered is tikanga isn't a sometimes thing. It's an all the time thing, yeah. and you can't pick and choose when you want to use it. And this is what this this crew are doing, and it's yeah, it's disingenuous. Yeah. Well, yes. I thought I'd catch up with you. And now, are we are we going to have a break? Are we going to to sun our bones and see some sunshine over the summer break? We are. We're just going to chill as we head into Christmas and just spend lots of time with family, because you no, know, that's the most important thing at the end of the day. Everything starts and ends with Fano. It certainly does. And on that, sister, I mean, you have a very good festive break and you and I most definitely will catch up in the new year. This has been Karina Shields here with a very, very special Woke News of the Week on Reality Check Radio. Thanks, Karina. Kia ora. Kia ora. Thank you all for joining me this week. And I just have one more show for the year here on Reality Check Radio. And next week, it's going to be an absolute cracker to see the year out. I have Gilda Kirkpatrick along for her thoughts post-election and Jeffrey A. Tucker, Brownstone Institute's founder, is booked in. So fingers crossed the connection gods play nice. Make sure you stick around. Up next is Peter Williams Afternoons and he'll have some more music, more talk and more insightful commentary. And don't forget to let us know what you think. Text us at 2057 or email at inbox at realitycheck.radio. You've been listening to Counterculture with Marie Busky on RCR. Reality Check Radio. Radio. Radio.